Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Today on Media Roots Radio, we have a very special guest, someone who's never been on the podcast before, but one of my favorite podcasters out there, Leslie Lee III. Leslie Lee is the co-host of Struggle Session, fantastic podcasts, and this is a quote from the Struggle Session webpage. If you've ever wondered what Karl Marx would have thought about Sonic 3 and Knuckles, you've come to the right place. Join us as we wade into the reactionary hellhole of modern pop culture in America. We talk about video games, movies, TV, wrestling, comic books, music, anime, and all of your problematic faves. Leslie Lee has written for Jacobin Magazine, Japan Times, and Pro Wrestling is Art. He is the co-host of Struggle Session with Jack Allison and Jonathan Daniel Brown. And the reason uh, I decided to ask Leslie to come on Media Roots Radio today is because I have been itching to do a sort of long-form discussion of the Unbreakable trilogy by Amnate Shyamalan and also an in-depth discussion about his newest film and the last installment in the Unbreakable trilogy, Glass. But since Leslie has a lot of other opinions about different things in pop culture, or as he refers to it on the podcast, Poptimism, uh, we decided to have a discussion leading into our discussion about Glass and the Unbreakable trilogy, just about the Disneyfication of not just pop culture, but reality, and how Disney has absorbed properties like Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we sort of analyze superhero movies. But if you're mainly interested in hearing our discussion about the Unbreakable trilogy and Glass, we start that discussion at about 51 minutes into the podcast. First, we go over Unbreakable and Split, and then we get into Glass. The actual discussion on Glass specifically starts at about 1.18 into the podcast. So if you want to avoid spoilers on Glass, make sure you don't listen past 1.34 into the podcast, an hour and 34 minutes. From 1.18 until that point, we talk about Glass, but we try very hard not to spoil anything. But just from my perspective, I don't like to hear anything about movies, even if people say they're not going to spoil anything, because for some people, what's considered a spoiler might not be for someone else. So I would recommend only listening to our discussion about Unbreakable and Split, and not the glass part, uh, if you haven't seen it yet. But after you've seen it, come back and listen to the whole thing. So without further ado, here is my interview with Leslie Lee, the third, and Abby jumps in right before our discussion on glass. Hope you enjoy. thought we could start with talking about the current state of not just superhero movies, but the tentpole, you know, Hollywood movies in general, like the current state of them. I mean, especially after Disney has, you know, turned from a behemoth into like a super behemoth company buying up Lucasfilm and uh, the Marvel universe or the Marvel studios or whatever. And I see a lot of your tweets and comments about about the state of like superheroes movies and um, and and what the state is with with Star Wars right now, and it's really interesting what's happened because at first everybody was really excited 
George Lucas is being cut out. You know, that's going to change the Star Wars universe in a positive direction for everybody. We're going to have tons of new properties and tons of spin-offs and TV shows and all this stuff. And it seems to actually have limited the scope. So, yeah, so what you just said, well, the first problem there is, oh, wait, yeah, let's get rid of the guy who created all of this that we've all been obsessed with for our entire lives. That's what's going to fix it. And if you're a Star Wars fan, an in-depth Star Wars fan, you know that was kind of uh, foolish to think because the good thing about George Lucas was that he didn't have to have control over anything except what he wanted to have control over specifically the prequel movies and a couple other properties. Once you look at once he once he only wanted to work on those, everything else, the books, the games, the comic books, he kind of let all these other writers and creatives have kind of free reign to kind of do what they want with them. And it really expanded the star Wars universe. My fondest star Wars memory is not, watching the films my fondest star wars memory was when i was about 12 my sister bought uh for christmas bought me uh, some of the novels by timothy zahn and i remember uh, i that was the one present i was able to open on christmas eve and i could stay up and i stayed up all night reading it and just being (laughs) engrossed by this extension of the star wars universe that's past the films i also love the knights of the old republic video games which are fantastic the jedi academy video games so there was tons of star wars stuff that wasn't necessarily being you know put under this iron grip by this one corporation it wasn't under the iron fist of mickey mouse now that's what we have where they and when they took it over, they basically killed all the expanded universe, um, all these uh, all this work that all these other writers and creators and video game makers did within the Star Wars universe. They said, no, that counts anymore. That doesn't mean anything. We're going to reboot the whole thing ourselves. And they did it in like a really boring because they because their vision of Star Wars is so limited. George Lucas understands like a thousand years of Star Wars history and he understand, but he's only really focused on, you know, certain parts of it. Yeah. Disney only understands basically what George Lucas, like the first trilogy, like those are like, like those t- 11, uh, I guess it's more like a, like 20 years of the rebellion, which for my money is the least interesting time in Star Wars. But that's why we've gotten, gotten you know, this rehash of the rebellion in the new Star Wars films while we got two prequels set in the same time frame. <clears throat> And why everything, when you look at all the Star Wars media coming out now, it really doesn't escape what we already know from, like, the original trilogy. Like, it, it's all, re, it's either a rehash or trying to retell certain parts of it because their vision of it is so limited because their vision of it really is, all right, the original trilogy is the one that everybody says they love so much. Let's just keep remaking it and make more money out of it. That, that's really interesting that you, your fondest Star Wars memory is one of the extended universe novels. Because for, for me personally, I never, I never really got into the novels, but I definitely hear what you're saying about just this overall picture of how George Lucas allowed all these different creators. And I guess my familiarity is more with the video game universe yeah. and how many video games that they put out from even the late 80s to 
like, I don't know, the late 90s, it seemed like an incredible amount of just even PC games. For some reason, those are the ones I remember the most, like like Rebel Assault, X-Wing, TIE Fighter. Um, And it just seems odd. I mean, even from a corporate money-making perspective, it seems odd for Disney to lock things down this heavily with just even if we're just talking video games. Like the amount of Star Wars video games that have come out since Disney bought Lucasfilm has been abysmal. And it's two. It's two. It, yeah. And what it, what are they called ba- again? It's, it's, it's Battlefront. It's Battlefront 1 and Battlefront 2. That's basically, aside from mobile phone games, which I don't think anybody really counts as, you know, legitimate Star Wars game. It's just been that. Battlefront, which was a game, which was a game that, you know, was released during the heyday of LucasArts owning everything. Um, and people enjoyed those old games much, much more than they enjoy the new ones. In fact, there's an underground community that keeps, you know, kind of remaking and modding the old Battlefront so they can play them because they don't like the new ones because the new ones are kind of pushed out on the same assembly line as the Battlefield games are. And this is because, if your listeners are wondering why any of this matters, because of corporate consolidation, um, Disney sold the rights to the Star Wars games just to Electronic Arts, which is another oh. behemoth who is taking over, who's basically taking over the video game industry or trying to. And so you have these two co- corporate conglomerates working together. This is capitalism that's supposedly as finest, and the best they can come up with are two middling video games. And all they've done, they've thrown millions and millions of dollars out of this, hundreds of millions of dollars at this and what the end product is is two things that all fans hate basically i was just gonna say i haven't really heard anything but negative you know aside from the initial hype where people were like oh my god these graphics look amazing you could, the stormtroopers look real it, it was like a complete failure and yeah and people yeah so it's just i mean it, it is really sad um that what even happened i mean you said that electronic arts bought or they sold the rights to their game development to Electronic Arts. But what happened to LucasArts? Is that under the umbrella of Electronic Arts now? Uh, no, it's. Ba- I think Luke, the LucasArts studio actually has kind of been mostly shuttered. Um, the Walt, When Disney bought it, they basically kind of started hollowing out i guess parts of it was still around and they would uh, and here's a funny thing they like disney has announced several um star wars games would be coming out but they keep canceling them basically they can't get them out the door for one reason or the other either the creatives and end up leaving or they, disney decides for some reason that this game is costing too much money or they cancel it but yeah um lucas arts technically um, still exists, but they haven't really put out anything at all of any note uh, since they've been bought by Disney. And also in terms of not just the extended universe novels, which they said are no longer canon and are no longer allowed to be published by people unless they're official Disney canon, the comic books are all pretty much official Disney uh, stories now. Is that right? Like there are no more just spin off stories like Dark Horse used to do. 
back in no, the day. Yeah, they're all, you know, really closely tied to Disney's current vision of it, which I again is very a limited time frame for what, you know, the Star Wars universe is. And this is kind of uh getting to what Disney does and why they're so rich is basically their way of controlling copyright because the, they cha- They were able to get the United States government to change the copyright laws to extend, you know, to a ridiculous length. Um, basically, whenever you create something, a character or whatever, you're supposed to have a certain amount of time where exc- only you can make money from it. Then after that, you know, you your, the rights become like open, uh, yeah. open source. Uh, that's why, you know, why people talk about HP Lovecraft so much now. It's because... You know, no one really owns the rights to any of H.P. Lovecraft stuff. Any publisher can publish a compendium of his work. If you have a great story with Cthulhu, um, you can write it, sell it, make a movie out of it, make a video game out of it without having to ask for his uh, descendants' permission. And that's not really a bad thing. In fact, that's probably been one of the best things to happen to H.P. Lovecraft, a writer who wasn't really appreciated in his time because of if the wrong company had bought the rights to his stories at that at a certain time then they would just keep it under lockdown until they you know could cash out and that's happened with a lot of writers a lot of artists so yeah. it's not really beneficial to the artists to have their their work um locked down for decades and decades after their death but that's what disney does and wants to happen to basically everything yeah and that reminds me of uh something I remembered happening. Uh, there was a lot of hype actually surrounding the idea of Kurt Vonnegut's, uh, some of his more famous n- novels being turned into films. They already made films, you know, some films out of his movies. I think the Slaughterhouse Five movie was kind of an indie film from what I remember. There was actually a really good film made of Mother Night. It was probably one of the better ones. But Leonardo DiCaprio's father owns like a publishing company, production company where he's bought most of the rights to all of Kurt Vonnegut's books. And, you know, apparently Leonardo DiCaprio has been working with his father for over a decade trying to figure out how to make some of these into movies. But why don't you let someone else make it? Yeah. You know, I mean, so I guess what I would say out of this one positive thing is if you're an author or creator, put something in your will (laughs) saying that um that there's a certain like time frame where things maybe even become open source like if you want your descendants your you know your children or grandchildren to make some money off your work that I can understand that but maybe put a clause in there saying you know after 20 or 30 years this stuff becomes publicly available yeah. because this this will continue to happen and you mentioned Disney got the US government to change copyright laws I I didn't even know that I'd love to find out more information about that. But something about Disney that's always just jumped out to me is I know Disney is actually so litigious that if you parody Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck, people trying to even make parody cartoon versions of them, they will come after you and try to sue you, which is unusual that a company would be able to lock down even people making parodies of their material, which if you look around in society, you really don't see that many parody images or knockoffs of Mickey Mouse and a lot of their iconic, you know, imagery. Um, And that's probably because they are more litigious and they are more serious about suing people that use anything resembling um, anything they put out. So, yeah, which is, 
and yeah, and which is so funny because when you think of Disney, what do you think of? A bunch of cartoons they made from public domain stories. Exactly. Like that's the main thing you yeah. think of when you think of Disney. Like all like Snow White, Cinderella. They exactly. didn't come up with the they didn't come up with the Lion King. Like all of this stuff is stuff that they took from other people, didn't pay them anything for. And and they were able to create art that people do appreciate from it, but they don't want anybody else to be able to do that. Yeah. And I think, you know, like there was one, it was actually not a very good movie, but there was one interesting kind of experiment this filmmaker did recently where he, he actually filmed an entire independent movie inside Disney world. And I don't know if you've heard of this, but it has a lot of imagery, you know, that's probably copyrighted, um, but somehow they didn't end up coming after him for that movie. That's like one of the rare examples I've ever seen of someone trying to parody or satire Disney as a corporation and getting away with it. Oh, a funny uh, insider story that I remembered um, from a Walt Disney autobiography. Uh, apparently he fired um, a team of animators who at a work party made their own animation uh, that was only circulated like at a work party of Minnie Mouse and, and Mickey Mouse fucking. And they sh- and he, they showed it at a work party on a projector and Walt Disney fired the whole team. He was so upset. So, you know, even doing parodies inside Disney <laughs> that, that weren't even shown to the public was, was too much for Walt uh, back then. But I guess let's move on to what Disney is doing now with superhero movies and how they sort of somehow have this magical ability not just to buy up uh, the entire uni- Marvel Universe, which has been fractured uh, to all these different movie companies, or, or mostly it's not fractured anymore, except for Sony owns the Spider-Man universe. Disney seemingly has this magical ability, and I, I'm saying that facetiously, to actually get fresh ratings on Rotten Tomatoes for every single one of their superhero f- movies that they've put out so far. Since since they bought Marvel Studios, except for maybe Iron Man two, or I and I and I might be actually wrong about that, and I just find that remarkable. That how is that even just technically possible? You know, and you could and I hear all these YouTube reviewers now, you know, sort of making jokes about how oh yeah Disney cut me a paycheck, blah blah blah. But I mean, what what is that? Why is has Disney just figured out this magical formula? To hit the critics <laughs> in the right spot, or is there something else going on there? I mean, how does that how does it make yeah, sense? Yeah, the magical formula is um, you bring and make special screenings for all the critics, where you treat them really, really well and talk about them like they're part of your family. You give them cool swag, lots of nice food, and also if someone uh, writes something critical about your company, you excommunicate them from that. That is the magical uh, key to it. We talk about it on Struggle Session a lot. Like, this is how Disney operates. They do treat really well. And if you cross them, they will not allow you to review movies for them. This this is not an exaggeration. This is something that actually happened that everyone couldn't look up. And it, it, what, it, what the larger thing is, is like, if you're... N- if you grew up before Poptimism took over, it would be mind-boggling to you to see something like Iron Man or Black Panther get rave reviews from a critic. 
I rem- I was a kid during the 90s when, you know, the first wave of the superhero films started to come out. You know, Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Blade, Spawn, all that good stuff. Critics hated all those movies. I remember watching Siskel and Ebert trash all these movies that I was super into and wanted to see as a 13, 14 year old boy. And it was fine. Though there was supposed to be certain kinds of movies that critics liked, which were, you know, the weepy dramas, the historical narratives. And then there was the other movies that critics hated that you were you know you could go see and like anyway, which were the, you know, temples, the action movies, the sci-fi spectacles, that sort of thing. Now, every once in a while, they were like a sci-fi spectacle, and that was fine. But what has happened with the MCU and Disney and the Disneyfication and the corporatization of it all is like critics are have kind of just seeded, seeded their place in the conversation to Disney and Disney specifically because they, sometimes they'll still cri- criticize like superhero movies that are outside of the Disney, uh, what outside of Disney ownership, Disney Marvel ownership. But within that and within you know Disney Star Wars, etc., they are just they have just ceded their um, critical abilities to this one company and say everything they put out is great everything they put out is fantastic all these movies that 20 years ago we would have mocked and ridiculed ridiculed um actually deserve oscars now that that's how good they are and it just really dismays me as both a uh, superhero movie fan and kind of a film fan like this is not what film criticism should be there is no way in hell that black panther should be getting the same like score at, at, as it, there's no way in hell that black panther should have as positive a reaction from film critics as the godfather part two that just is not something that should be real and yet it is real and yet it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's a strange it is a very strange topsy turvy thing to see that happen. And I, I I remember Siskel and Ebert very well and they hated pretty much anything, you know, and even and we're talking about all also just all mainstream critics from that day hated en- most things and anything that was usually a horror movie, a tentpole movie, a franchise movie, a sequel. I remember even sequels back then were just like, oh, my God, this is a joke. It's another terrible sequel. Why do they keep making sequels? You know, there's only one good, you know, one or two good sequels ever made, and it's Godfather 2 and Terminator 2 or whatever. But now it's like even sequels get like 85% on Rotten yes. Tomatoes. Like, I mean, for example, let's just take one of the newest Marvel properties, which, and let's just face it. I mean, I actually thought Infinity War, even though we're having this conversation, I really enjoyed Infinity War in a, in a lot of ways, I thought it was extremely entertaining, had a lot of super satisfying crossover moments. I mean, Doctor Strange fighting Thanos with Spider-Man and Iron Man. I mean, it was, it was pretty awesome to watch. But yet, I'm sitting here watching the marketing campaign unfold for their sequel, Endgame. And it almost just seems like they, you know, Mar- Kevin Feige is worshipped as this guy who's figured everything out. Oh, my God, he has the, you know, he has knows every puzzle piece, knows where everything is. But... In reality, the Marvel Universe, if we're really being honest, is not really a seriously connected cinematic universe. And I would even argue, and I've heard other people argue this as well, that Brian Singer, 
hate him for you know the, the all the bad press he's getting now, but you can't deny that the X Men movies themselves have a connected universe feel for the most part that actually kind of feels like a real connected universe. There's this struggle that's sort of happening among all the characters, the mut- mutants versus humanity. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it does kind of feel like a hodgepodge crossover thing. They haven't really connected it together in the ways that people you know, project onto them. And what, just one of those examples is after Infinity War comes out, you have Ant-Man and the Wasp, which was a movie that's supposed to take place before the snap in yes. Infinity War, which is just odd in general to do that. And then you have Captain Marvel coming out, which they've somehow figured out this trick to make it take place in the 90s so that they don't have to address the snap. Okay, that makes sense, I guess. I haven't seen it yet. But then, even weirder than that, they have, they're already starting to have Spider-Man Homecoming advertisements. Yes. <laughs> when, spoilers, uh, if you haven't seen Infinity War, Spider-Man dies in Infinity War. So the last time we saw Spider-Man was he was turning into dust and then Homecoming is like, oh, he's back. Yes. There's no explanation. And no apparent consequences. It's not even a somber movie. There's no reflection on, oh, he was dead for six months. It's like, oh, he's going on European vacation. Well, okay, I guess, you know, half of the galaxies inhabitants dying uh, suddenly (laughs) had no effect on anything whatsoever. Which is interesting because it almost implies that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is having the same issue that actual comic imprints have had, especially DC in the past, where they had so many contradictory issues going on with how vast the universe had become. They had previous iterations of characters, later iterations. They had to explain that they were Earth-1 and Earth-2 characters at some point. And then they did the Crisis of Infinite Earths to condense everything down and to solve all the the continuity issues. So I kind of think that that's what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is is preparing to do, or they've already done, is found a way to reset things because they just bought Fox So now they have technically the X-Men and Fantastic Four universes that they can absorb. And the contracts for both Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Pine are, no, it's not Chris Pine, Chris Evans are up after this movie. So I'm kind of wondering if they're just, if that's actually what they're going to do, which, you know, flies in the face of the notion that Kevin Feige is this all-seeing eye who has everything figured out, he's mapped it all out. I feel like they're, it's kind of like they've reached a point where they, it's too messy that they really haven't connected the universe. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, when you actually, I mean, when you look at all these movies are kind of separate. The reason you enjoyed Finney War and the reason I enjoyed Finney War, it was like 30 minute chunks of each of these different movies. And that's how, because that's probably how long you should have to watch Guardians of the Galaxy before being able to turn it off. That's why Infinity War had like a, just felt a little bit better because it was just a chunk from each of these. It wasn't really a cohesive uh, thing. It was just a compressed version of all these put together. Um, but no, they haven't figured it all out because when you even look at the stakes of it, what were the stakes in Guardians of the Galaxy 2? All life on the Earth in the galaxy was going to end. And that was like a jokey, funny movie where, uh, we, you know, they play goofy music over it. What were the stakes in Infinity War? Oh, there he was going to kill half the world. That's not that's literally half as bad as the last <laughs> one. And the people who stopped the first guy were like a talking raccoon. Like, but you need all the heroes in the galaxy to stop the guy who's only half as bad as the guy in the previous film. Like, it just 
like it, it we talk about on the show about you know how this, there's this drift and consequences and you know stakes in films where everything becomes about saving the world if they marvel were actually smart and were thinking about this in a holistic way they wouldn't have every movie wouldn't be about the end of the world which it is like every even yeah. doctor strange a movie that didn't need to exist was about the end of the world and iron man didn't bother showing up for that did he no doctor strange handled it by himself like it's just this constant end of the world end of the world end of the world in every single film because they aren't they really aren't thinking about these films as a shared universe they're thinking about each one individually which i don't necessarily blame them for these are big things that cost a lot of money maybe you do need to think about them individually but you you know don't give them credit as film critics have shockingly enough they were saying wow this is so amazing in infinity war that they were able to pay a bunch of actors to show up even though they pay those actors to show up in separate movies usually like there's there are all these yeah. fluff pieces about like this is the most ambitious project of film in 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 the generation or ever possibly i'm like no they just have a lot of money and have these people on the contract they have to go they have to show up to that back lot in atlanta Atlanta, in Atlanta, yeah. and, and and film these uh, green screen fights. They have to do that. They don't have a choice. And for all we know, they probably, or maybe even wrote the script around who was could be scheduled to be there at the same time. Yeah, if like I yeah. Mean, <laughs> so how genius was it? Really, you know, how how ambitious was it? Or did they just figure out a way to be like, okay? You know, the, the guy who plays Thor can only show up at the same time that people, the Guardians of the Galaxy cast does. So we need to write that into the story. Yeah, I mean, and, and, they were, and they were shooting this stuff while they were shooting, like, the other films, too. Like, most exactly. of the Guardians of the Galaxy stuff was shot while they were shooting Guardians of the Galaxy, too. James Gunn directed half of Infinity War, and they're just not going to give him credit for it. Yeah. And how funny is it, too, just, I guess, making, you know, James Gunn is out now at Marvel um, the, the Disneyfication is also apparently allowing alt-right trolls to get people fired from their like, extremely successful jobs. Like Disney seemed like they love James Gunn. Yeah, like I, I do had I do want to speak on this because I am not a James Gunn fan as a creative. Um, I don't really like his work but what happened to him was like really fucked up like it shouldn't have happened he made these people like a billion dollars like he, he this came from him i don't know why um uh the whole world fell in love with guardians of the galaxy but i know it was because of james gunn it was because of his twist on this it's yeah. probably just putting the stupid music behind it that's something i never would have done or allowed so <laughs> points to james gunn he you figured out how to make a bunch of money for disney and then they screw him over for like old tweets he made and it, for people who don't know james gunn used to work for like trauma like this is the tromeo and juliet yeah i mean like, he, he made a movie with like a monster dick yeah a guy with like a dick that had like an alien face at the end of it i mean so, what do people think he was tweeting yeah in 2012 or whatever before yeah. everybody became a political pundit online before everyone got woke and he was able to get fired from this because disney even though they made he made them a million dollars they just don't give a fuck about any body or any creative and they will fire and replace people um this also happened with iron man the um the co-star of it was uh the guy from empire um Oh, the guy who had just won an Oscar. I know who you're talking about. 
the yeah. Don, the guy who re- got replaced by Don Cheadle. Yeah, let me see that. That's a uh, Terrence Howard. Terrence Howard, who t- we have to say is an accused abuser. So like, don't think we're like defending Terrence Howard as a person, but uh, he was some. He was paid more than Robert Downey Jr. was on the first Iron Man, and they were going to try to like sc- screw him out of the money they had promised him. And so they just replaced him with Don Cheadle uh, for Iron Man 2. Um, Edward Nguyen Jr., he was in the first Hulk movie and he was supposed to play Hulk Hulk throughout all of this. But Edward Nguyen Jr. was like, um, I actually want these movies to be kind of good too. And so they got rid of him because they thought he was too uh, demanding about like actually being in quality uh, films. And yeah. so, and they replaced, replaced him. Uh, so that's one of the things that kind of sucks about the Disneyfication. You might wonder why is any of this matter? Well, if you're thinking about what, cr- what creatives are and what they do for our, our culture, they they are important and when you have this one corporation in control of all of them in control of all of their access to work that's kind of a scary thing when like they can just erase people from the map not allow them to be in films not allow them to do anything if they break you know a minor corporate rule that's not really a good thing of course and i mean i hear stories you know through the grapevine and just like i you know read a lot of like movie blogs and stuff and People make it seem like Edward Norton's a huge diva. But then you have to wonder, you know, I mean, Peter Jackson recently admitted, came out right after the Me Too thing blew up in Harvey Weinstein's face and said that, oh, actually, I'm just remembering now that Weinstein tried to get us. He actually is probably responsible for getting us to not hire Ashley Judd as Erwin in Lord of the Rings because, oh, now I realize it was because she wouldn't have sex with them. So who knows if now that Edward Norton's been basically fired from being in future Marvel movies playing the Hulk, did did he just push back on them creatively and they needed someone who could just be a complete lapdog? And then also uh, remember Edgar Wright was working on Ant-Man and the test footage he released for Ant-Man looked amazing, but it seems like they just hired another director to just replace him. And even there's a scene in the movie which looks exactly like the test footage that he shot. I mean, it was a strange thing what happened with that. Uh, yeah, as well. Yeah, so it, like when you look at Star Wars, they've hi- they fired more oh Star God. Wars directors than they've actually hired, right? They have they Disney and Marvel. You don't when you're hired, sign on for to direct one of those films. Uh, and Jack, and my co-host Jack Allison, he's a uh, he works in Hollywood and he has. A, perfect way of putting it like you are not hired to direct these films you are hired to play the director of these films in a lot of ways like all a lot of all the fight scenes and stuff someone else directs those all all the settings those are pre-visualized before you even get there the got people are already working on what where your characters are going, what it's going to look like, what the costumes are going to be, et cetera, et cetera. That's already done before you show up and to be hired. There was an independent um, European uh, film director who who was uh, considered for doing a Black Widow movie. And she, she when she got there, um, she was just like, they just told her, oh, don't worry about the, if you've never done fight scenes before, we're going to have someone else direct them for you. And she was like, and oh, don't worry about this. We're going to take care of that for you. And she was just like, you know, I 
would like to meet Scarlett Johansson. That would be nice. But I also would like to direct my own movies. But when you have this Disney system, like you don't, and you're a director, you don't really like have a chance to do that. You don't have a chance to create your own vision. They will create it for you. They will. And so when you see like someone like Ryan Johnson, who's always mugging for the camera and acting as director, that's because that's his actual job. He didn't actually have to direct that movie. That was a really strange thing. It almost seemed like Disney was trying to do their own sort of mea culpa, like, oh, now we're letting a a visionary director take over and we're not going to tell him what to do. Even if he has horrible ideas on what to do, yeah. we're just going to let him do all of them. Everybody should have known that Mark Hamill was actually not fucking around when he was saying all that stuff during those <laughs> yeah, interviews. Yeah, like Les Jedi Les has a, spe- a special thing, a special has a special place in my heart. And I think it's because, you know, even to this day, a lot of people will, automatically assume criticism of it is coming from like a white right-wing perspective about how you don't like that there's women in star wars or black people in star wars which is really bizarre to me because there were women and black people in like the original star wars sequels right like if you like star wars you probably like know who princess leia is and kind of like her like it's not a right-wing thing to it it's not like the new ones i don't watch that as a black man and see oh finally there's the black guy in star wars i'm like oh wow this black guy is way cornier than lando is (laughs) yeah i mean uh John Boyega, I you know I enjoyed his performance in what was it, The Force Awakens. But the more that I watch it, the more uncomfortable in some ways that it makes me. And I, I don't know how you feel about it, but he's kind of played to be like the fool character. Yeah, like he, yeah, he is a, like he's like a Nickelodeon character. He's always yeah. screaming, always loud. Um, yeah, he is like a like a foolish person who doesn't really know what they're doing. He's still, I guess, noble, but he's not portrayed as like being a smart person or even like Luke was like he wasn't necessarily foolish. He was just kind of naive, this kind of a naive farm boy who didn't really know what was going on and learning and became more mature and intelligent as it goes on. When, you know, John Boyega's character is still like this really goofy, like Nickelodeon character. So I'm not really sure. Like, I don't know. I think if you were a racist, you could probably get a lot of John Boyega's portrayal uh, in these movies. Like, I think, I think you could, a racist could, enjoy uh how the uh, new star wars films betray black men i i don't know why people think that the progressive thing to do is to cheer on this you know massive disney film like i that and that's really kind of a coup by disney they were able to convince people that if you didn't don't like their movies you're a political reactionary which is yeah exactly just just and I see people who should know better like fall for it. Like people, a lot and my companies have tried it. Um, it was tried by Sony with some uh with um kind of with the Kim Jong Il movie uh where they were going to kill a Korean dictator. Uh, I think it's called Interview. They tried it with the uh, new Ghostbusters with the female Ghostbusters. They would delete comments that would just say like the trailer for Ghostbusters wasn't funny, but leave on comments that were explicitly, you know, sexist, right? To 
kind of paint this picture that the only people who dislike it are, you know, sexist, right winger, incel guys. But of course, last week, um, they just announced that they're doing the Ghostbusters 3 with the original cast based on the original stories and completely skipping over all of the um, the new female Ghostbusters that they did. So in the end, um, who were the real sexists? Yeah. No, it's so absurd the way that corporations act like they are the arbiters of morality on issues of of race and things like that. I mean, it's it's ridiculous it's, uh, what they tried to do it's, with and, uh, Star Wars. Yeah, and it's so ridiculous, too, when you just take a look at it and realize, hey, in all these Marvel and Disney movies, there's no gay characters at all. Yeah. They, 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 gay people don't exist on, in movies anymore. They used to. No, they'd to. rather... They'd rather write Lando uh, falling or like wanting to fuck a robot than just making him just a gay man. Yes, or yes. If I mean, it's it's nuts. Yeah, they say, I mean, oh, he's pansexual because he's in love with <laughs> a droid. So they want those woke points, but they'll never show any like two men in their relationship in any of their films like ever. That just is not something that they're going to put in their movies. That is not something that is going to happen. Uh, and they, no one's really calls them out for it. And people just think that, oh, because they have a, you know, uh, they're going to make Ray a Disney princess too. Like that's all they have to do. That's all the work they have to do. And no, you don't get woke points for doing the bare minimum for diversity when you are actively like ignoring the existence of gay people in all your films. Exactly. Which is interesting because something that's just more considered crap that people don't really appreciate that I kind of have more appreciation for than the Marvel Cinematic Universe. As chaste as it is, the CW DC comic stuff at least has a lot of like normalized gay characters. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like I, maybe it, I think I, I can name like maybe a half dozen at least in the, that universe. Yeah. And, and I do kind of like the CW. I do enjoy the CW shows because first of all, it's like they're like, you can watch one episode and be done. Like you with the cinematic universe and even the Marvel TV shows, like they're, they're soap operas. You have to watch every single one. You got to dedicate your life to it in order to get any enjoyment out of it. You don't with the t and the TV shows like they are rightfully held in disdain by critics. That's a good thing. I like when genre stuff is held in disdain by critics. They don't win Emmys. You know, when you have I, that's and that's fine. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to be they're supposed to be entertainment mass entertainment and all the eggheads who are super into film and tv and all this stuff should hate them and that's a fine you know separation that i like um well on the other hand it was just announced that black panther is up for a best picture oscar which is just completely completely absurd to me i don't i have yet to meet a person who has actually convinced me that black panther <laughs> even if they enjoyed it or enjoyed some aspects of it that in 2019 they still think black panther is a really excellent film with a capital f deserving of an oscar i mean yeah very very well said i i share your feelings on that and I also, I just read an interesting article that also explained that these animators who work for Disney, a lot of them are farmed out actually to other countries now, are basically being paid such low wages that that's part of why some of the CGI in a lot of the Marvel movies looks like crap. I mean, not I'm not blaming the animators, I'm blaming the fact that they're being worked to the bone. I mean, it's 
yeah, I mean, is there anything else you wanted to say, Leslie, about this merger? You know, maybe say something about the merger that's already taken place where they now own X-Men and Fantastic Four. Yeah. Is that a good thing? Is that a terrible thing? Is it going to get worse? Like, Yeah, yeah. so of course um, it's an awful thing for Disney to own these properties. The, like, the only good superhero movie that's come out since the MCU has come out has been the X, like, Logan and Days of Future Past and X-Men New Class. Like, most of, most of those Fox X-Men movies are bad, but they do allow a little bit more creative freedom, a little bit more um, differences. Uh, uh, now, granted, some of this creative freedom is going to serial rapist Brian Singer, so we should not, we should not, we do have to make that clear, but... It, it, at the end of the day, like Logan, I think is a really interesting, good superhero movie that Disney would never, ever in a million years make. A lot of people enjoyed Venom. I did not, but it was something different and it was short. It, if it was a Disney movie, it would have to be like two and a half hours long. It was 90 minutes long. And I like I think I like where, you know, Sony and um, Fox are. And and the thing about the Fox merger is not just about these superhero properties coming back to Marvel. It's also like Alien and Predator and all these other properties oh, no, I that, didn't realize that 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 Mar- Disney Marvel is now going to own it's like are we ever going to see a R-rated uh sci-fi movie again like that's a real thing we have to think about or worry about now because uh no now the hope is of course that other people other companies will be able to afford will uh to make movies maybe you know without these using these same properties but when you look at how the movie industry as a whole is kind of like on this slow collapse where there at one point there was hope that you know Amazon and Hulu and Netflix would kind of be able to inject some money in it and save these mid-budget films but as we're reading reports out of Sundance right now is like none of those companies are buying movies now like none of those companies are buying movies from Sundance now. They're all in-house producing them beforehand. There were a couple of years where, you know, Netflix would go to Sundance and buy your film for you. And so someone who made an interesting independent movie could do it without that um, interference um, from any corp any major studio even these streaming services now what's happening is that like no wait no matter what if you want to make a movie you're gonna have you know either the person from disney saying all right we've already made half of it for you you just kind of plug it in or you have the person from netflix saying all right well you need to include this this and this and this because our algorithm says all, all our uh movie watchers only like films with this this and this in it yeah, it's just so strange because you have, and what mainly we were we were planning to talk about um, the new M Night Shyamalan movie Glass and his Unbreakable trilogy, but you have like the directors of you know the biggest flagship Marvel movies acting like they have just as much creative freedom as M Night Shyamalan doing a twenty million dollar budget. So it's just surreal to hear them, you know, saying, "Oh my God, Marvel's the greatest." You know, Disney, oh they've been this has let us do anything we want. I mean. It's extremely strange, you know, I mean, have they just conditioned themselves into thinking that? Because that's clearly not the case. It's a dismal state of things that you're describing where there's all these sort of locked in tracks now where these companies aren't really necessarily buying independently made films that have already been made. They are sort of facilitating them in this more corporatized, top-down fashion, which is which is sad. 
Yeah, because you're just going to end up with a bunch of same looking, same sounding, same uh, feeling movies when the dream was that, oh, wait, now we can, you know, skip the normal system. Maybe you can make a movie on your iPhone and it'll be blasted to everyone who has Netflix. But that that dream is done. That's not how it it works anymore. You go and make that film in your iPhone and nobody is ever going to see it unless you post it yourself. Why do you guys think that? Uh, just the Marvel and DC universes haven't split off into more interesting characters throughout the series. Why is it just constant iterations of the same exact characters? Is it just because they've had like the ad and like all the mascot and merchandising already done for it? Or <laughs> are you talking about within weird. the movies, Abby? Yeah, just not coming up with any new movies with new characters. I mean, Venom was like the first new you know, introduction of a new character for, like, years, it felt like. And Venom isn't even new. He was in the second Spider-Man film. It, it's kind of... Well, I think part of the problem does stem from the comic books. It's very hard to create a new superhero and get people to like them in the comic mm-hmm. book. And I think the uh, films... And with the film, uh, when you get to Disney, it's hard to convince them to try an unproven character, a character right. that you you know can't sell a successful comic to. Why are we going to give you a hundred million dollars to make a film? I think with Guardians of the Galaxy is probably like the only real example of something that was made more popular by the film than it actually ever was in the comic books. There was a initially a pretty interesting run for Guardians of the Galaxy that people like, but the film was kind of is kind of its own thing and has kind of changed thing. It's just like, you know, this risk averse um thing that they have. And really the reason they made Guardians of the Galaxy was because they wanted their own Star Wars. They wanted Marvel to have their own Star Wars. So it wasn't really like a real risk. They were trying to replicate right. something that already existed and just plug their characters into this mode. When, when you look at someone like Captain Marvel, Marvel has been trying for years to turn her into their Wonder Woman uh, character, their big uh, Wonder Woman character. And that's why that film is happening. It's not really a risk. She's not really that popular of a character, but they've been spending a few years trying to turn her, all right, she's our Wonder Woman now. This is our pattern. We can get people to follow it. Yeah, let's have everyone change their accents to adopt the Israeli accent uh for Gal Gadot or whatever the hell her name yeah, is. Yeah, did you I mean, did you, just, see, you <laughs> Abby, did you see when I posted like they actually changed Wonder Woman's accent in the comic books to be no shit. really accent. Wait. She talks like Gal Gadot. Wow. Now. So they were oh, wagging wow. Batman's dick in our faces to try to distract us <laughs> while Wonder Woman's accent was being changed in yes. the comic books. <laughs> I don't know if you I know mean, that Abby, they actually showed Bruce Wayne's penis. In oh. a DC comic book from like six months ago. Send send me the link. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like what you were saying, though. I think that really explains movies today to a T, just this kind of formulaic plugging it in. There's no fucking originality, no creativity, and there's no risks. That's why it's kind of refreshing to see something, you know, love it or hate it, like what Jordan Peele's doing, because you just don't see that anymore. It's really safe, and it's really just uh, constantly remaking shit that was already done. Yeah. And I just don't understand that with, you know, millions of books. It seems like, you know, an unlimited supply of different script writers and books and ideas, and to keep going back to the same thing, it, it really just kind of is the epitome of, like, what, uh, you know, how capitalism breeds, like, just completely unoriginality in, in our present day, it seems. 
Yeah, unoriginal, me, uh, mediocre, but nevertheless mm. more praised by critics than ever because capitalism can buy um, good uh, ratings on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Unreal. I, I'm shocked at how Glass was rated, Robbie. I'm so yeah. sad. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, well, I was just going to, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I think we've talked Star Wars into the ground already, but we were going to, I was going to mention how The Last Jedi was at like 95% on Rotten Tomatoes critic score and the audience score was like somewhere around 33, 30%. Well, well as you know, Robbie, and, and um, these are the Ru- Russian bots that have done this. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Abby, oh, yeah. you are part of this whole narrative, so I don't know why you're laughing. You're you're responsible for this too. Imagine, imagine the guy was so butthurt that he actually like stretched the logic to say that Russian bots had destroyed his Rotten Tomatoes score. I mean, that's how fucking sad we're at. And and his uh, and it wasn't even the score that really counted, anyways. It was like the you know, I mean, in my mind, it counts, but like no one really, you know, no one's gonna base their decision to go see Last Jedi based on the audience score. But what was interesting is Glass, M. Night Shyamalan's latest movie, got something like a 70% audience score and 33% rotten yeah. critic score. Well, you know, I'll make the argument that there's a Russian bot conspiracy to destroy his career. Yes. <laughs> that's why that's happening. So that should be addressed. But Robbie, what were the critics saying? Well, I was thinking we can get into that maybe okay. as we, like, we should maybe discuss first what glass is um mm-hmm. for people who are still planning to see it um and who've already this is this so this part of the podcast i guess will mostly be for people who have already seen unbreakable and split um and who are interested in glass and i guess you know part of the reason we're talking about it and we 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 front loaded this discussion with discussion about superhero movies is because Somehow in the middle of all this, they made a not good even one. in the middle. They made a good one. Not even one. in the middle of all of it. And end capping both parts of this era. I mean, let's just start by saying that M. Night Shyamalan broke into the scene with the Hollywood scene with The Sixth Sense, a, a film that besides for its twist ending, which fundamentally changes the entire movie, it still holds up very well as a, you know, a well-made thriller horror movie um, with pretty great acting from, you know, both Bruce Willis and uh, and Haley Joel Osment, I think is his name. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Haley Joel Osment. And so M. Night shot and directed this movie when he was only 28 years old, which kind of blew my mind when I, when I learned how young he was when he broke onto the scene. He had made a few other movies be- before that that weren't really popular, but he was immediately hyped up as the new Spielberg. I mean, there's even a Newsweek cover that says that with him on the front. Um, he was elevated to a point uh, where most first-time directors are not. I mean, maybe the only other example I can think of is J.J. J. Abrams, 
who sort of was hyped up as the new Spielberg. Uh, because he desperately wants to be the new Spielberg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the fact that M. Night was hyped up as the new Spielberg, it wasn't even because his movies were in the style of Spielberg. They were just interesting and well-made. But one of the things that's always sort of made me interested in M. Night Shyamalan is there's something I've admired about his ability to continually take these sort of weird risks in his films that are deceptively presented as tonally mainstream films. And there's not very many other directors who work this way. So he fits in this weird category where his films are very creative and different, but not in the same way like an art house director or a Lars Van Trier, you know, type person would make the films. They are they are very stylistic, but they resemble in some ways a mainstream film. And, you know, Steven Soderbergh maybe fits into this category a little bit. He there, he sort of has a lot of experimental features in his movies underneath his mainstream movies even. But at 29, uh, he shoots and directs Unbreakable, uh, only a year after The Sixth Sense. It comes out in theaters a little bit, just a little bit after the first X-Men film. So this is, Leslie, you were mentioning earlier how the 90s were superhero movies were widely hated by critics. Blade wasn't even, it wasn't even really considered a cult movie until much later. And the people who said Black Panther was such an amazing woke film completely ignored Blade yes. um, and its existence. But so those were the only movies out, you know, it was Batman, Batman Forever. I would say Batman, Batman um, Returns and Blade were sort of my favorite superhero movies from that era. I didn't particularly like the first X-Men movie um, and hasn't aged well. But so Unbreakable comes out in 2000. What's what's amazing is Unbreakable is basically a deconstruction of a superhero film before superhero films even became these bankable movies that are the biggest movies in the world. And then he ends the trilogy, Unbreakable is the first installment, after all these Marvel movies have come out, I think something like 26 Marvel movies have come out in the last 19 years or so. And so that's just impressive alone that he sort of end capped this era with a superhero movie that is defies genre, really. You can't even really call it a superhero movie after 19 years. So I guess let's start with Unbreakable. I mean, when you guys, I'll start with you, Leslie. When you first saw Unbreakable, um, did you see it in the theater? Like, what was your impression of it? Like, what did you did you like it at first? Did it take you a while to get into it? Like, give me a little history on that. You know, I, when I saw the promotion for it, I wasn't really on my radar. It didn't really necessarily interest me that much. I didn't watch it until it was like on DVD um, for rental and stuff. And when I and I realize now, like, I didn't even know it was supposed to be a superhero movie. That was actually a, a, a kind of a surprise. It wasn't necessarily marketed as like this, you know, a super superhero movie. It wasn't marketed that way. It was kind of more of like a mystery, a thriller uh, sort of thing. And when I watch it, like I, it's I do think it might be the best superhero film. Period. Because it it really takes like so. We we just in you know, struggle station. We recently did an episode about Watchmen, and 
people forget the premise of Watchmen is what if superheroes existed in the real world and like how that would change everything. And then breakable kind of has the same like premise, um, except, you know, what would, what would superheroes be like in the real world for real? And that's kind of a groundbreaking premise that's been watered down because people feel like all the Marvel movies take place in the real world, but they really don't. They don't really take any of the concepts of superheroes seriously and apply them to the real world but unbreakable does unbreakable tries to create like how could you have a superhero in our normal day-to-day lives and he does it like in this masterful way even from everything from like what his powers are like how they're so subtle that he could actually live his life without actually noticing that he's a superhero to like his costume just being like this large ponce show that still resembles a cape to his weakness being like water and like drowning like something again that he might not necessarily uh his whole life might not notice that he is more susceptible to it than other people. I thought it was a brilliant, you know, not even like just a reimagining. I don't want to call it deconstruction. I actually think it's a reimagining of what superhero, a more, a ground level realistic take for what superheroes could be in our world. Amazing. That is an incredible analysis. Um, I just rewatched it. So I watched it in the theater when it first came out and I feel like I didn't fully appreciate it. Um, so I was really excited to rewatch it just a couple of days ago. And at first, my first thought was, wow, this aged poorly because right at the beginning you have M. Night Shyamalan throwing up, you know, the, these really kind of in your face, obtuse like camera angles, you know, pivoting back and forth from Bruce Willis with the woman in the train. And it was like very kind of obvious almost to the extent that I was turned off until I realized that the whole movie was almost structured as if you're a comic book come to life. Every scene was shot kind of that in that ethereal dreamlike setting and all the dialogue was very deliberate. So it almost felt like he was trying to re-envision having a comic on the full screen and interpreting this story as if you're reading a comic. And so once I kind of realized that, I I was blown away. And every scene is shot so well and in that dreamlike setting. And it was just absolutely amazing. Um, the scene with his with his son when he finds out, you know, when he kind of comes to terms that, yeah, he he does have these powers and he kind of slides that newspaper across and gives him the the shush sign. Look, I think that he could have stretched out Unbreakable into several movies, and that's what you have to really appreciate about M. Night Shyamalan is despite all the fucking hate he's gotten, I don't know why. It's like he has these expectations to do these enormous twists you know, in every movie, and it's so much pressure. I feel like there's no other pressure put on any other director like there is on him. But um, I just absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it, and I think that it was really smart of him not to do another sequel to that until glass because of course he could have done you know he could have done two more unbreakable two unbreakable three and have us see what bruce willis did after he cultivated those powers and really goes out there and lives that life and that's what i really loved like when glass opens it's 15 years later you know and it and it's reflected in the movie like bruce willis is is older and that whole time of his life you never see and I love that that's kind of still a mystery. And he does he didn't exploit that, you know, and, and you have to appreciate that because he could have just kept raking in the money. 
because Unbreakable was such a new movie and it was such a cool concept and he could have just kept going with it. But for that, I respect him so much more. But yeah, Unbreakable is an epic movie and, a, and you have to absolutely watch it if you guys haven't. Split was a different story for me, but we can get into that. I'll just give my little recap of, of Unbreakable before we move on to Split. Yeah, Abby, I, I remember, I, I think I was like raving about it to you when it first came out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I liked it a lot when it first came out, but I, I wasn't really even that into comic books at the time. So I think it, it also took me a while to get to really appreciate it on a, a deeper level. And I liked what you said, Leslie, about how you don't really see it as a deconstruction. You see it as like a reimagining. And I think that's a really interesting way of putting it because it's not even something that's like really in any comic book that I've ever read about superheroes. And there's been other Alan Moore deconstructions of superheroes. I would say Miracle Man is a particularly strong one. I, I put it up there with The Watchmen. That one is sort of, uh, for people who haven't read it, it's it's like, what if there were actually like super powered people living among us who were brainwashed by the government into thinking that they were just normal people. And then they all sort of at the same time discovered that they were uh, super powered. And that, that one tries to do a really sort of grounded take. And I kind of almost now that I've had so much time to reflect on Unbreakable, I wonder if M. Night Shyamalan was riffing in part on Miracle Man because the lead character in it kind of has a David Dunn-ish uh, uh, quality to him. And that's the character played by Bruce Willis. I guess one of the things that I really appreciate about Unbreakable over time is these moments, these emotional moments with this really memorable score. I think it's, yeah. in my mind, one of them the arguably... The really good. Yeah, it's it's one of the most memorable scores in the 2000s and beyond. Yeah. Like I can, even if we're talking about like John Williams, I mean, he even his newer Star Wars scores, I can't even remember most of the music, which is t sad to me. But like Unbreakable, I mean, it's such a operatic, and it almost has like a Western quality to it. So there's different sort of themes that M. Night Shyamalan is playing with. There's almost a Western uh, feel to some of the melodies. There's like a Batman, you know, quality to the way that David Dunn sort of hides in the shadows and the mood of it. You know, there's also Superman sort of references. I keep going back to DC because I feel like there's, you know, maybe there was some more Marvel references in Glass, but... You know, there's also that scene, and we're going to spoil Unbreakable and Split. If you don't want to spoil for you, please stop listening now. So at the end of Unbreakable, you know, after David Dunn basically murders this serial killer guy, chokes him out, um, he goes and uh, wakes his wife up and carries her up the stairs like Superman. I mean, it's mm -hmm. this beautifully shot one-take scene where... When I first watched it, I was kind of like, oh, this is this is kind of corny. Like, I love the movie, you know, in general. And there was, but I always thought of that scene as a little corny. And now that I watch it when I'm older, I'm like, that's actually like a beautiful sort of Superman Lois Lane kind of moment mm -hmm. that he's mm -hmm. showing. But but it, but it's it's not even heavy handed. It's almost kind of subtle. Like, I didn't pick up on that at first. I, I would agree with Leslie. I do think Unbreakable is probably the best superhero movie ever made. It's it's a completely original story, even though we're we I keep talking about all these references that it throws back to. It's a totally original, unique story. And of course, when M. Night Shyamalan originally made Unbreakable, 
he he said that it was part of a trilogy that he had planned. You know, I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, I never really questioned it. And like Abby was saying, it's you you kind of wanted to see. It's almost like you're left mm-hmm. at the end of Unbreakable wanting to see what he's going to do next. It's mm-hmm. like such a, a tease of a feeling. And M. Night Shyamalan actually said that his favorite parts of movies are always the first act. And when he made Unbreakable, that was kind of like the was originally the first act of a three act movie. And what we saw in Unbreakable was him sort of just taking that first act and stretching it out into the sort of this meditative character study. When Split comes out, it just seemed like another M. Night Shyamalan horror movie. It didn't seem necessarily that special, you know, from the promotional. Uh, I remember watching the trailers. I was like, oh, this looks kind of good. It looks a little weird. Um, and James McAvoy, you know, until you actually watch the movie, you don't realize like how fucking good. He yeah. Actually yeah. Is in it. The trailer doesn't did not make his performance look as good. As no, it was. not at all. <laughs> when he's like the little kid and stuff, you're like, what the hell? You know, it's, it's funny because so even James McAvoy said in an interview when he first read the screenplay for Split, he was like really concerned that this Hedwig <laughs> character was in it so much because he's like, this is if I have to act like a nine year old for this much of the movie, it's going to be unwatchable. So, you know, I mean, it's challenging to cut that into, I guess, a trailer that seems interesting. But, you know, I kind of I remember walking out of Split thinking that was a good, good movie. You know, I actually thought The Visit, the movie that people sort of were starting to say M. Night Shyamalan was back when he made. I remember thinking that one was like amazing. And Split, I was kind of like, that was good, but I didn't it didn't hit me. Like then the same way the visit did. Yeah, I actually really, really love Split. I had no real expectations for it. People told me it was good, so like I had it like just sitting around. It took me like a year to actually get around to watch it, and when I did, I actually you know really loved it as a horror film with this larger uh, connection because you know James McAvoy, he's great, and he's his. The way his portrayal in this film is just excellent. It's really, it reminds me of like, um, they've done a lot of, the, a couple of these films, like the last, Clo- the Cloverfield movie with John Goodman. Basically, you know, a girl mm-hmm. is trapped with yes. a crazy person, a crazy man. This is the best one of those by far because it actually like has some character and depth to him besides just being crazy. There's a mystery involved, even with his personalities. You don't really know how many there are or which ones are in control or which ones in power. And they did and they really they didn't skip on the violence. I thought this would be a a bloodless movie by the end. But it was when it when it paid off, it really did pay off when the beast came it really was a freaking beast that was scary and i i really thought that it could have been a much softer safer film but m night Shyamalan didn't choose to do that i really appreciated it for it yeah abby do you want to talk on Um, split sure um i I was gonna say one more comment about unbreakable what i loved about unbreakable is how I empathized with the terrorist. Yes. Um, I don't usually empathize with the villain and or the mass murderer and <laughs> the terrorist. And for some reason you feel so bad for Samuel L. Jackson and you just, 
you don't, you know, you hate when you find out that he goes in a mental institution because you're just like, he just wanted to know. Yes. <laughs> he just wanted to know that his life had meaning. <laughs> don't you guys understand? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, so I loved that. I, that's, that's hard to do. He lost me at the village. I didn't love, love Lady in the Water. I, I, I appreciated the metaphorical aspect of it. He really did lose me at the village, but I was blown the fuck away from the visit. Um, brilliantly filmed, brilliantly, brilliantly cast. The twist was incredible. Yeah. You could not see that from a mile away. I mean, it was, it, and it wasn't like overtly scary or horrifying or use those cheap tactics of, you know, the cheap, the, the, the quick cuts and like the fucking cheap scares. It didn't do any of that. It was bizarre. Like, you know, she wakes up to the woman like vomiting in the house and, and the whole time you're wondering, are you crazy? Like, are these people just, you know, they're just old people and they, and they keep making you feel like you're insane. And he has a tendency to make things kind of just off-putting and creepy, but also, I don't know, it's just, it was just incredible. And I just rewatched that too, to prepare for this. And I'm just like, so, so all about that movie. But I, I watched Split um, with an open mind, Robbie, you really loved it. And this is what's shocking to me. I couldn't buy it. I couldn't buy James McAvee as all of the characters. Um, I am obsessed with him now. After seeing Glass, I feel like he should fucking win an Oscar. He's the best actor in the world. Like I was, I feel like he honed in way more in Glass. And I don't know if I just need to give Split another chance, but I didn't yes. fully buy it. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it another chance. But, but after seeing Glass, man, this guy's the best. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Split, it, it was an interesting concept. I think that, again, brilliantly cast that the, the actress in it was was fantastic. Couldn't have been better, uh, you know, that that tension between them. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. I, I actually, a part of me was like, what's the twist? Is he going to turn into a werewolf? <laughs> but then I realized <laughs> that it wasn't as overt as as you're expecting, maybe. And I liked that also. It was a little more, um, you know, not not completely over the top. So different um and yeah i mean the whole the whole the fact that you're in that universe at the end it just brings a completely different shocking element you're like oh my god this is this is part of the universe he's he's also one of these people so it's again he he really hits you in the gut at the very end um right when you think it's over so absolutely amazing i'm just gonna just really quickly just explain how weird and jarring the ending of split was for me like a lot of people were blown away and got this like huge emotional satisfaction out of it. But I, I remember when I started hearing at the end of split, the unbreakable music come in. The first <laughs> yeah. thing I thought was, why is he reusing the music from unbreakable? This, <laughs> this sounds cheesy. You're like, this like I got mad. Soundtrack. It was weird. No, I was like, what the fuck is happening? And I was like, I was like, Oh, Bruce Willis is in this. Like, Oh, it's the character from unbreakable. I was like, that's a weird conversation where there, he's like, yeah. His name was Mr. Glass. Like the whole, the, the, for some reason, the scene was just so weird and jarring to me. And I walked out thinking, I want to see an Unbreakable sequel, but now I'm just like, it was M. Night Shyamalan just like trolling at the end. Was that real? Like, I, I didn't know it was like a legit twist ending telling us that there was going to be a sequel. <laughs> I don't know. Do you want to say anything more on Split, Leslie? Yeah, I just want to say, like, I do like that he took, you know, 10 years. Not more than 10 years, like 15 years in between to tell this new story. As Abby uh, pointed out, like he could have easily made like a, a Unbreakable that was just like uh, any of these average superhero movies where he mm -hmm. fights the villain, 
but no, you in, he t- took a whole movie to introduce the villain for him to fight eventually. Like I thought, like that is just such a brilliant uh, idea for a sequel to the superhero movie that it's actually kind of a shame that they never really figured out how to do it with Marvel or even DC uh, never really was able to do it. Like I, I people thought that was is what Suicide Squad was kind of going to be like the origin of the yeah. villains that you know didn't you see a Batman versus Joker movie? But unfortunately, that not really going to uh, ever you know turn out. But you know, M. Night Shyamalan, he did it. You you take you get one director with a clear vision, uh, give him a decent amount of money and do it, and he will deliver. Which which begs a question: How? And I'll turn this question to you guys. Do you believe him when he says that he had these movies already planned out, or? And I'll just throw this idea out there. This is maybe. You know, I'm kind of torn. Like, I think he definitely had a trilogy planned originally. But I wonder if he had a different idea in mind for the third one. And he, and like, I wonder how recently he maybe wrote a new, completely new story for it. Or if maybe this was the third movie um, that I he mean, had I'm planned sure all the time. I'm, I'm sure the critics got in his head, too. I mean, can you imagine like going through the ringer like he did after coming out so young with Sixth Sense and then having these completely absurd expectations put on you. I mean, yeah, he probably did have an original idea and then probably just doubted it for a long time. And that's why I'm just so happy that he he came out so strong at the end because he really proved everyone wrong um, and made everyone look completely stupid. But I, I, I can't imagine that he wouldn't have just constantly doubted himself and maybe rewritten this this story many, many times, um, especially because Unbreakable was such a first big success as well, and maybe Split didn't do that well, um, and so it was a lot of pressure. You know, I think when I look, when I saw the ending of, I, I'm sure he probably rewrote some of it, but when I got, to, we'll, we'll talk about the ending of Glass. I really felt like that's probably what it was going for the whole time because it, it's a kind of a mm-hmm. neat little circle back to the beginning. I think the specific, sure. the specific of the ending probably is what he originally came up with. Now the way he got there might have changed and adjusted for with the times too because you know it has been 15 years. It ha- has been, there have been all these superhero movies. You do need to kind of adjust and update your ideas, but I think the ending was probably the same. Yeah, no, I mean I I mean I it's it did tie things up so nicely and seemed like such a perfect like callback to both movies in so many ways that, yeah, it, it's hard to say. Um, but I, I mean, I would lean more towards the direction of that. He definitely had at least the, 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 uh, story treatment, you know, sort of all planned out. Um, Why do you think it took him so long to complete it? I think, you know, I think maybe working with Blumhouse and the, and the budget and like being, you know, thinking of himself now as like sort of a lower budget director, um, maybe has helped free him a little bit creatively. Like, I almost feel like he did let the critics, you know, I'm just projecting here. I don't know if this is necessarily true, but I've watched a lot of interviews with them recently. And it seems like there was a moment where he, 
you know, he wanted to have the creative freedom that he originally did, but he didn't want to maybe get the same amount of heat that he originally did. And then also make money too for, you know, who, you know, like Unbreakable actually, I think even lost money when it came out. It was a $70 million film um, split, I think was somewhere around 20 million or something like that or less. Wow. Um, Wow. No, no, actually split was 9 million. Oh wow! No shit. <gasps> yeah, split was nine million. It made two hundred eighty million worldwide. Um, oh wow! So it, it, I'm pretty sure when he he envisioned it, he probably didn't envision a nine million dollar movie. So he probably did compress some of these things to fit into the Bloom Bloomhouse model. If people don't know, the Bloomhouse model is they really make like really micro budget films that have these have a good high concept high concept low budget you can make a lot of money from those sort of things and that's how split was marketed as having this very high concept thing and it made it did make a ton of money for them so he's bankable again essentially and i mean and hyper confident i mean i would be super confident if if uh you know the my last two movies critics actually liked them after calling me a piece of shit for so many years maybe now we should turn to glass also sort of talk about if the critics are unfair about what this movie actually is and how they're interpreting it because just one of the things that i found interesting is a lot of critics seem to think that m night Shyamalan was talking about himself in this movie and the movie was about how he's a misunderstood genius (laughs) The, and I and I I just found that kind of funny on one level because I could kind of see maybe how some people thought that, but it's just so it's again it's just so unfair because they do this to M Night Shyamalan a lot. I noticed they did it on Lady in the Water, especially because he kills a critic, a movie uh, reviewer in it, the Bob Balaban character. I don't know if you guys remember that, but I mean I when I saw Glass. I saw that 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't look on any actual reviews. I didn't want to spoil anything. I felt like the trailer already showed us a lot. And, but when I walked into that movie, I I actually had my expectations fairly low. Uh, I knew that split for me was something that grew on me over time. Like it took me maybe two or three watches to actually realize I loved it as a movie. And I would even argue it's one of the most rewatchable M. Night Shyamalan movies that when I saw Glass, when I walked out of Glass, I was, I was fucking blown away. Like I was not just thinking M. Night Shyamalan is still back after this peak of success that he's had after a slump, but this is one of, uh, in my opinion, one of his more brilliant films, if not maybe in his top three films, I would say, you know, best film or better film than signs. You know, if you want to say signs unbreakable and six cents are some of his best films, that's traditionally what people think. But I would, I would, you know, it was for me right now, it's one of his best movies easily. And I just want to hear from you guys. Like, what was your initial reaction about it? Did you walk in with your expectations low? I know I hyped it up to you a shitload, Abby, um, trying to get you to go see it, but, yeah, why don't I start with you, Abby? Like, what was your expectations going in? You know, I know you just seen Unbreakable right before, so describe that sort of and how you 
interpreted the movie and then how you felt after seeing it? So I went in with very low expectations just because movies are such shit now that I just expect nothing from movies. So I went in, I was completely blown away um, and for so many reasons. First of all, Sarah Paulson is my favorite actress. I think she's absolutely wonderful. Um, anyone who's seen her performance as Marsha Clark in The People vs. O.J. Simpson will know what I'm talking about. I, I hate American Horror Story, so definitely don't judge her on that. But she's an excellent actress. And so first of all, the casting was perfect. The fact that he brought back the kid was very emotional, especially after just seeing Unbreakable. And I haven't seen that kid in 15 years. So seeing him like felt very real almost. It was like you grew just with this these characters that you had just seen and and you kind of believed that, you know, that, that they had been there that whole time. And you kind of an, an, an imagine like what was his life like the last 15 years? Like it, it, it's so amazing how he's able to do that. He's able to kind of, again, bring you through that dreamlike setting where every scene is set up. The cinematography is just completely mind blowing, especially, you know, that, that pink room, for example, when he's holding that, when she's holding that therapy session with the three of them, that is just beautifully shot but at the same time, it, it hits you in the gut as something that's very real and you feel like very invested in, in all of the characters. And Bruce Willis shined through really strongly and Unbreakable, but I did feel like in Glass, he was almost the weakest link. And I don't know if it's just because he was a little bit more subtle in his acting, but because everyone else was so strong, um, it was emotional, it was beautiful so many twists that hit you so hard that you do not see coming. Um, I think that, you know, are we doing spoilers here? Let's maybe wait until the last, uh, okay. very last part, but yeah, keep, keep going. Yeah. But I mean, absolutely mind blowing. I think that um, even though I was disappointed with an aspect of the ending, it made sense. I just wanted more selfishly because I loved it so much. I didn't want it to end but it's so genius the way that he constructed the ending and just the entire movie. And I appreciate it so much more because it left more to be desired, but that's the point. Um, and it will never be resolved because it was so good, but you know, true genius directors and artists know when to, to stop. And it's hard to do, especially when the money's there and, and you can easily keep going like we were saying. So again, I absolutely think it was my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie and I can't wait to see it again. And I just can't recommend it enough for so many reasons. Wow. So you, it's, so you think it's your favorite one. You even yeah, like it even I more do. than Unbreakable. Yeah, I do. Wow. Interesting. Well, I mean, I, I definitely think it's up there with Unbreakable. I, I liked, I think Unbreakable definitely edges it out, but Leslie, give us your, um, your uh, experience watching it and how what your expectations were like walking in. Oh, I didn't have low expectations because I, I already enjoyed the previous two. Um, I wasn't going to let the, the critics and the haters talk me out of enjoying this. I actually haven't read a lot of the critical response to it even since then because I'm still kind of high off. It's nice to be able to go to a movie theater, see a superhero movie that subverts expectations in a good way that surprises you in a <laughs> good way like a lot of people will still try to defend say the last jedi is good because it subvert your expectations but like yeah in nothing but bad ways and really dour uninteresting ways while glass is probably a is in a lot of ways a sadder more depressing film but still has like this 
through line through it that is still kind of interesting and hopeful and points to something expanding instead of just things shrinking. Like all these sacrifices the characters make in the film are done for a larger purpose. And then you can imagine from there what happens. I like a, I like that what you said, Abby, about knowing when to stop. He stopped at the exact mm-hmm. right point and now the unbreakable universe it exists for all of us now now we get to dream about it and imagine about it for the rest of our lives like what happens to this world now that all this stuff has happened and that's what i love from film that's why i loved star wars because i could and the expanded universe version of it because i could imagine all these other things happening from what i was reading or watching and i think and break uh this trilogy really created something as interesting as that beautifully put yeah and it's i'm i'm tempted to go into a little bit of spoiler territory comparing this to the broom boy but let's wait a little bit because i think that this is he did a really interesting thing that you could argue is broom boy ish um but it's it's definitely on a whole other level and is like the right way to do something like that i guess just speaking from a as an un, a hardcore Unbreakable fan, I the reason it wasn't even because of the low Rotten Tomato score, although that did worry me a little bit. It was more just because I Unbreakable to me is like one. I would say it's definitely in my top five films of like all time. To me, it's it's one of the most perfect films ever made. It's to me, it's up there with like some of Stanley Kubrick's best films, and so that bar is very hard to reach and. What was I, I guess part of the reason I was blown away is because he he fucking did it. I mean, he got he still didn't to me get better than Unbreakable, but he got really close. And the message in the movie, even though it it is an overall very depressing movie in a lot of ways, there's an underlying like very hopeful, positive message in all of it, which I was also blown away by. Um, that ties in perfectly to the last two films, like almost like in an effortless way that he did that. And that was also just, wow, how incredible is it that he connected both of these movies? You know, those another thing that slightly worried me walking in is how is he going to merge? Mm-hmm. Even though I believed him that this movie split was part of the Unbreakable trilogy originally, I was still confounded by how is he going to do this? That might not work. But man, did he make it fucking work? It made perfect sense. It was like, oh my God, this is it. Like he figured it all out. Like, I don't know how long he's figured it all out, but he, he managed to do it in this in elegant and beautiful ways that I guess just as an M. Night Shyamalan fan and someone as a fan of Unbreakable, just super excited to see what he's going to do next. And hopefully other filmmakers are inspired too to just do more weird movies like this. And I would say it's definitely a weird hard to pin down movie. It's not a genre movie. It teases you multiple times throughout it, making you think it's going to be a superhero movie. I mean, even the setup, which is not really a spoiler, is very Batman Arkham Asylum-esque. It feels almost like a better version of like uh, a Suicide Squad Arkham Asylum movie or something. One other aspect of it that really kind of impressed me, I've actually watched it three times now, was right when they land out out of that building during that really satisfying sort of confrontation, which takes place in the first 20 minutes of the movie, which is like, this is what you, he knows you want to see. 
which is also kind of riffing on the superhero formula. Like he's giving you what you want to see as the third act in the first act of the movie, which is also like, boom, holy shit, what's he going to do next? And I think that's where maybe it lost a lot of these critics where they're like, oh, he can't live up to that. But I thought what he did with the rest of the movie was brilliant. Yeah, he could have easily opened up with Dunn, um, just taking out a low level, low level person, and done like a traditional superhero story where he doesn't meet um, the beast until the end. But like the way the tension builds between them in that middle section was like, wait, he's right across the hall. And, like that anger that they have yeah. towards each—that's so like cool. Like you, you'll never get something like that with Batman versus Joker uh, in any of these movies, or Iron Man versus whichever disposable villain he's uh, uh, fighting in his films. Like that's one thing that this film really gets that like the Marvel universe specifically has struggled with is it has two really good villains with motivations and backstories. And like you, a lot of times in this film, you'll end up rooting for them. Like uh, during this, even while sometimes they're hurting and murdering people, you'd be like, Oh, I still want them to be able to get away. I still want them to be able to do do what they want to do because they're just these fully fleshed out characters that aren't, uh, you know, just one dimensional with one purpose, trying to blow up the world for no particular reason. Yeah. yeah, there's so many, there's so many series, you know, you can invest yourself in a 12 part series now and just have no interest in the characters at the very end. And you just feel like, why did I just waste 16 hours of my <laughs> life watching this shit for no reward? And it was just the complete opposite where you were so, so enthralled and so invested in every single character, no matter what bad deeds they did. And then you were kind of told and gaslit by the enchi- the entire theme of the movie. Like that was kind of this underlying theme and there's all these different layers to unpack, which we can get into, but, um, but yeah, like being told, you know, the both sides thing, like how they both sided yeah. the Bruce Willis character and then the beast, it was like, they're kind of equal. It kind of reminded me of like the establishment today, kind of both sides in, um, you know, the factions and these tribalistic elements that we're dealing with in our society and the mass hallucinations that we wade through on a daily basis. And then having Samuel Jackson kind of say, that iconic phrase where he said, we don't know who the people are who don't want us to know the truth, but today they lose. Um, Just so, again, these pieces of dialogue that strike you and and stick with you. And um, what I was saying about James McAvoy before, man, I could not be more wrong about his performance um, in Split because he fucking nailed it. He honed in on those characters I mean, the thing is with Split, it's like, I think a part of it wasn't believable to me because it's like, you know that that doesn't exist. It's like not a thing, the split personality thing. And so it was hard for me to grasp that someone could have like 20 different (laughs) split personalities, but it didn't matter. I mean, you really believe that he's different people. Like he fucking does it, dude. And in this movie, it was just absolutely executed flawlessly. Like when that person opens that door and he's what's the woman's name, Patricia? And he has like his coat wrapped around him and you're just like, oh God, like it's just so intense. You immediately know. The crazy thing is you immediately know from a visual cue of his face, which character it is. Like at that point in the movie, I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. I already know what character he is. Not even because of the dress, because of the expression on his face. That, that's just amazing. Yeah. It, but there can't be gods among us. It's not fair. (laughs) 
Yeah, McAvoy's performance in this, and really he is the protagonist of these films. I think I saw some people kind of criticize it because during the film, David Dunn kind of moves into the background. But that's because this is about, you know, um, James McAvoy's character. He's the protagonist. He's the one that drives everything on. It's ultimately his story that's being told in this one, how he comes to terms with his pain and his suffering and the end of that and that does tie in neatly with the end of glasses glass and the end of david dunn's character they kind of all converge and have these epiphanies at the same time but he is the driving force from the film so i can understand some people wanted more of bruce willis because character because they've been waiting a while for it but i think it was kind of front-loaded where he was in the beginning and then he kind of Take, then James McAvoy basically takes over and I don't think any re- one could really compete with him one thing that I wanted to say really quickly is that the saddest thing about these movies is that when you're watching them you know that you can't ever experience that again and like the whole time that I was watching Glass I was almost sad because I knew I could never experience seeing it for the first time and <laughs> You know, it's almost like kind of a, a weird element of watching his his work because it's it, it's all about that first impact, and I'm sure that I can get a you know deeper understanding and appreciation the more I watch it. But like, you're never gonna get that first viewing again, and you're always gonna crave it and and leave you wanting more. And it's just it's a really hard to do that over and over again. Yeah, and I I know I know the feeling you're talking about. But I, I feel like this movie actually does hold up really well on, on repeated viewings. I mean, I'm already interested in seeing it again. But let's open it up to some spoiler talk about it. Br- the lack of Bruce Willis, I'll, I'll start in reverse order, sort of. Uh, the lack of Bruce Willis, I could definitely see how people were disappointed by that. Um, I could understand that. That's a valid criticism. If you were expecting it to be, you know, an b- unbreakable sequel, and that was what you were expecting... You know, even though you got that kind of in the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie, you got like a perfect version of that. I can understand that. But rewatch the movie. I think, you know, now that that's the shock of that sort of subsided, that you know that Bruce Willis is not in it very much, rewatch it because the scenes that he's in are just perfectly in there just enough. This was definitely, I, from what I've heard, the movie actually was originally a three-hour cut. Um, so oh, wow. this was, I'd love to see that full version. Yeah, me too. And so the, I, I think that means that it was refined a lot in the editing process and they decided to, to give you as much impact as possible with the scenes that Bruce Willis was in. And one of the scenes I noticed after rewatching it was once you know the ending and he actually shows you this before, you know, the ending, which is Mr. Glass had masterminded this whole situation to release footage to the world proving that superheroes exist. That's the main sort of twist in the movie that comes last. But there's this beautiful scene which happens way before you know that's going to happen where when it shows Bruce Willis break through the door, he looks at the he turns around and looks mm-hmm. at the camera. And it's like mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of my favorite Bruce Willis moments actually like right now like in in all of his movies, damn. Like now that I know that's the ending, people are going to see him busting through that door. So I, I think rewatching it for those things is great. And then I know, you know, I picked up on little details like Kevin's dad reading a pamphlet on uh, disassociative identity disorder on the train, for example. And then I, and then I realized, oh my God, this is actually one shot that they've sort of somehow CGI yeah. 
together with the original scene from Unbreakable. And I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff out here, but I want you guys to talk about some of the stuff I'm mentioning. One of the last things I'll say is I was such a diehard Unbreakable fan that I, <laughs> I'm doing all these Bruce Willis puns by accident. I don't mean to, <laughs> but, but I was such a Unbreakable fan that I had already seen all the deleted scenes and I was already trying to figure out a way to do a fan edit uh, version of the original Unbreakable with all the deleted scenes put back in. And I never did it because they were never put out in HD. Uh, they're just standard definition, even on the Blu-ray version. But I love that you were going <laughs> to do that. <laughs> but insane. M. Night Shyamalan, man, he put in the two best deleted scenes from Unbreakable by far in the perfect moments in the movie. And and I when I saw that I was just like this is absolutely brilliant, fucking brilliant what he did, including the weaving in the Kevin Wendell Crumb's dad, you know, twist ending with the fucking footage from the original Unbreakable. Um, I, I just was blown away by that. I mean, that scene with Mister Glass when he gets hit with the laser and it goes back to the flashback, the deleted scene of um, Elijah oh, the, at the yeah. carnival was insanely intense i mean like i could see right. why they cut that out of the original unbreakable but he wanted this movie was very intense he wanted the intensity to really hit you in all these different parts so you guys go because i i just said a bunch of stuff Leslie, <laughs> uh, yeah like i think this film overall like like I, re I remember watching that scene in the movie um and i told my wife oh that's from the original breakbone she's like no it's not and like all i realized is because i watched all the special features on the dvd and that <laughs> and she hadn't seen it um the scene like uh it was re that really brutal scene and it, my wife really didn't like it because it was so brutal to uh elijah but the way that Shyamalan like ties all these characters history together and looks back in their past and really like it's it just they're more fleshed out than any of these superheroes that have been in like 10 movies like I don't you like you know so how like how many movies before you figure out that Tony Stark is like a jerk because his parents like were brutally murdered <laughs> like it took it t it takes a while to really like get to that like we st like even like and you still don't care yeah, that you much, still don't care that care that because he's played by like three different actors by the time you learn <laughs> yeah <dead>. yeah Howard <laughs> Stark died <laughs> yeah like it, and the way it was and the interest and the way they handled like the sidekick characters right like when they brought they brought back the original actor who played Bruce Willis's son which is always a risk because when you hire a child actor you don't know how good looking they're going to turn out when they are adults <laughs> because we know with uh Haley Joel Osment yeah, yeah, it's it's very difficult. It's always a risk. Cute kid does not equal movie star looking adult. With the, with with this one, he, Emily Shyamalan did okay, and that guy is a still like a legit actor, so he kept up with it. Um, bring him back, and the character who was friends with a uh, with Kevin, um, I forget her name, but like her character from Split, bringing brought back. I was a little surprised by that. I didn't expect to see her, but she's kind of one of the most important characters if you take my view that you know. 
Kevin is the main character of this film because she's the one that sees the humanity in Kevin, shares that pain. And like you, you, there's no secondary character in almost any of these superhero movies that has as much depth as they do, which is kind of a requirement. You have to have other human beings for these people to interact with. It can't just be them sharing quips with their other superhero buddies and then fighting CGI villains like that ultimately does you don't really feel anything about it you don't feel the impact of anything while you do really feel the impact of the the loss of these characters of the things that they go through through the eyes of their normal human um, friends and family such a good point to hone in on the humanness of them because that's kind of the point of the movie too is that they're human yet they have this supernatural quality and so to bring in those characters to really humanize each of them was so important and they were again bringing back the girl from split was just dead on um at first i didn't understand and then by the end i was just like bawling my eyes out um completely understood what her role was there um, I guess my biggest critique, spoiler alert, was that there wasn't this kind of big dramatic, you know, they, they hint that this big power play is going to happen at the tower and you're kind of envisioning the, this perfect ending um, like a superhero movie with big special effects and like everyone's watching real time. And that's perfect. Yes. It doesn't happen that way because that's so fucking overdone. And it's just so in your face and all you see is special effects and all you see is this kind of just over the top supernatural bullshit that doesn't have any rooting in reality. And so to see it this way made perfect sense. It was perfectly done. And I was talking to you about this, Robbie, and I said, yeah, I just wish that, you know, especially in this day and age with, again, like having reality so skewed and people don't even have a grasp on what the truth is. Like, how do we know that these people who see this are going to understand what they're seeing? And you were just like, that's, that's the point though. It's like, it's up for your interpretation. Like it could be construed as just people who broke out of a mental hospital and who are crazy. It's like, because that's our reality. Like people are going to take it and interpret it the way that they want to. And I was missing that scene. You know, I, I was so hopeful for that scene of like someone else envisioning or imagining their own powers and becoming like strengthened with the fact that they, they are also special. But like, again, Leslie, like you said, it's up to our imagination. He didn't need to give us that thing yeah. to hold on to because it's, it's now out there and we're part of it. And there's something special about that also. Uh, absolutely. And it's, and I mentioned broom boy earlier, in case anybody doesn't know what that means. This is a spoiler for the last Jedi. Uh, a child all of a sudden discovers the force or something and and force power uh, lifts a broom towards him to start sweeping the floor because I guess he's a child slave. So it, I guess to insinuate that there's going to be all these random people across the galaxy that are going to become force sensitive or force powerful um, at the end of uh, the, this last Star Wars movie. So what M. Night Shyamalan did is he basically did like the best possible version you could do for that same, you know, whatever Ryan Johnson was going for with that inspiring message that for me just completely fell flat. This was something that like really <laughs> fucking worked. And like, it actually, it ties in so perfectly. Just one, uh, one example, um, the comic book store owner who is also played by the same actor as the guy from Unbreakable, um, by the way, in Glass tells Anna Taylor-Joy's character where it all started was Action Comics number one, where the guy in the blue tights lifts up a yeah. car. 
talking about Superman. And the mm-hmm. very last shot of this movie before it cuts to the mm-hmm. credits is the beast on the television screen in that train station lifting up the car. Um, and I just thought that was great. And that's one of the more obvious superhero movie references. But let's talk about some of just the like comic book or other even film references that kind of popped up throughout this. Like, I mean, one of the more obvious ones that I picked up on was, like Abby was saying, all the signs in the movie were trying to tell you there's going to be this giant showdown, yeah. you know, at this tower, uh, this tower called Osaka Tower, I, um, which I thought interesting because Bruce Willis in Die Hard, you know, saved the day in um, Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah. So it's almost like riffing on Bruce Willis is going to save the day because that's what he did, mm-hmm. you know, in his first a- giant action movie. Um, sorry, go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like I, I really like that. And that's something you intru- introduced to early because, of course, as a diehard reference. If, and it would have to be because there's never going to be a building called Osaka Tower in America. W- why the Nakatomi Tower was, it was called Nakatomi Tower in Die Hard was because that was when people thought that Japan was going to be this international um, powerhouse, uh, financial powerhouse. And that <laughs> did not work out whatsoever. There, So there's never going to be a Nakatomi Plaza or Osaka Plaza. You can watch a lot of movies from the 80s where people think, well, reference, oh, the Japanese are coming and taking over and this and that other. That shit was canceled around like 1994 where they went through this really uh, big uh, depression and recession. (laughs) And so that throwback was interesting and the references to it constantly like i i did get excited oh wait i'm gonna get to see this big showdown on top of this tower and they never even go to it it's just in the background when they finally because they fa- they meet each other too early they face off too early just at the mental asylum where they're already you know compromised where they've been gaslit uh, and told that they're not super powered beings are they really like it and it, it kind of gaslits the audience too because you're you start to doubt them as well sure. and then you really see what they can do and it's just this understated slowdown i i if one criticism i might have about this film is that i think for that final showdown, Shyamalan could have broken the rules a little bit. Because there, there's a point when she actually says, uh, talking about Superman comics, she says, you know, in the first comic, he didn't even fly, right? In the, early, the first version mm-hmm. of him. Like, I think mm-hmm. he could have broken the rules a little bit and showed them do something, like go into like a Super Saiyan mode. Like when, because he says like, when yeah. you fight each other, that's when you're going to show your true potential kind of. So it could have, he could have yeah. gone, taken a little further but it's fine it's kind of fine that he didn't because then that leaves some of the ambiguity to the ending like how, what are people going to take it from this what are they going to believe They're, are they just going to dis, uh, dismiss it like you, it, it leaves things a little bit more open although it kind of would have been cool to see you know some really spectacular stuff but it was fine that he kind of didn't go uh, with it as well I totally agree with you, but I think it was yeah. intentional. Yeah, I think it was intentional for the ambiguity purpose. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's some other uh, just, you know, M. Night Shyamalan, I don't know how often he riffs on other movies in, in his own movies besides Hitchcock movies. You know, I know that's an obvious influence. People say he's like, too, he homages uh, Hitchcock too much. But in this movie, I felt like he was riffing on not just Die Hard, sort of with that ending scene, he was riffing on some other films that I found to be just really interesting. And I guess one of the main ones that keeps coming up for me now that I've seen it three times is Terminator 2, 
uh, people say it's one of the more interesting or better high quality sequels that's out there in general of all movies. It's it's a large part of Terminator Two is Sarah Connor uh, basically being gaslit by this therapist into thinking or he's telling her that this didn't happen to her uh, from the previous film. And she's in a mental hospital, and you know there's this big scene where she breaks out of the mental hospital, and there's this showdown between these two villains, um, you know, good and evil, uh, sort of the T1000 on one side and Arnold Schwarzenegger on the other. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I thought that maybe he was riffing on Terminator 2 in some ways, and also there was I, I felt like there had some one um, what's the movie called? Uh, I fr- I freaking forgot the title. Flew over the cuckoo's nest. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. There's definitely some aspects of it that remind me of that. But I guess one other interesting thing that I learned about Unbreakable recently was that he was inspired to have Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis be in the same movie working off of each other from watching Pulp Fiction. Mm. He says Pulp Fiction is one of his favorite movies and in that movie, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, I don't even think they ever interact, their characters. No, so. they don't. Yeah, they don't interact. So, But he wanted to see that energy that both characters sort of brought to those roles interact in a movie. Uh, that was sort of his inspiration for, for casting them in Unbreakable. Later on, Quentin Tarantino did this sort of, I think it was like a, I can't remember if it was for the IFC channel. It was like he hosted his own block of discussing some of his favorite films and they would show them and he would sort of end cap them with like an intro, 10 minute discussion on each one. And one of the films that he chose was Unbreakable. And he goes on for 10 minutes or so just praising it, loving it just as much as I did. So I'm wondering too, if there were some riffing on Quentin Tarantino movies as well uh, in this movie to some degree, or if it was just in my imagination. I mean, I know the James McAvoy character at one point goes into a personality where he's like, I'm an expert on Japanese cinema from yes. like mostly the 1950s <laughs> to the 1960s or something. And then the score of the movie, um, which is done by, I be- believe it's done by Wes Dylan Thorson, not the guy who composed Unbreakable. It's the same guy who composed for Split. The soundtrack has these kabuki elements going in it. This almost sounds like a um, shamisen chop uh, going a lot in the movie, which kind of reminds me of some of the stuff in Kill Bill, maybe a little bit. Or, And then it just got me thinking about, is this sort of the M. Night Shyamalan sort of doing these meta references to Die Hard in this? Um, Quentin Tarantino's doing these meta references to The Thing in The Hateful Eight by using, you know, score from The Thing. It's in a similar setting. It's Kurt Russell. So I don't know. I mean, it just kind of got me thinking of how many layers to this movie there actually are, even in just in a, in a like, sort of referencing things sense. And I feel like there's just a lot more stuff I haven't even, you know, picked up on yet. So did you guys pick up any references like that in film or just in, you know, other references in comics? You know, in general, when I'm watching the film, I try to avoid thinking about the references. I try to yeah. view it as, like, existing in its own world, uh, basically. I, I couldn't uh, get over the Nakatomi Plaza reference, obviously, but, like, I try to kind of view it in <laughs> the way that, like, this is all real, this is all happening. But I certainly think, like, M. Night Shyamalan is, like, a film nerd's film nerd. That's kind of what he lo- He likes, you know, referencing things and playing with these things. Like, he's somebody, he's the kid who was making films in his house when he was, like, eight with, like, a camcorder. 
like so and he shares like some of that dna with the quinn tarantino with all these which are a lot of our modern auteurs they're filmmakers who grew up watching filmmakers who grew up watching filmmakers and really are bringing all those references to bear now I, I, there's a comparison a comparing uh contrast uh you can compare and concrete contrast quinn tarantino with m night Shyamalan because tarantino is a much more blunt in his references like he'll just lift a scene and a shot from a movie like he'll just take the theme song totally. from the movie that he's mm-hmm. copying it like he'll, he'll he'll take like the hat and the outfit straight from uh the film where Shyamalan it, he always filters it through this lens of like what would really happen in this actual world what would they actually talk about what would they actually care about that's why they, i think there there was one misstep in this film that was very early on that came gave me kind of a bad feeling but i think it's fine now because he references salt bay uh in the his when david dunn's talking to his son they start talking about salt bay mm-hmm. is that a real yeah, that's guy a real guy that he was talking yeah, about that's a real yeah. guy oh i didn't even yeah, realize real, that okay. it's better that you don't because it's a real like me yeah and i can't imagine it being uh relevant in 10 years but who knows um but yeah it it did it, it he was trying to kind of you know make it seem like this kind of natural thing make sure we knew it was taking place in the modern world and a world that is pretty much our our world um i wish he would he could have picked maybe a you know slightly more timeless reference (laughs) (laughs) but um i understand what he's going for and does kind of show a slight you know difference between Shyamalan and tarantino because tarantino would have them like just talk about like old john wayne movie like instead of like salt bay (laughs) yeah quentin tarantino i i man i think that he's kind of losing it over the years i can't remember the last movie that he's made that i actually really loved and thought that he couldn't leave half hour to an hour on the cutting room floor and i feel like m night Shyamalan's not uh, doesn't have as big of an ego maybe that he's still able to listen to those around him especially since this movie was originally three hours he was able to take it down to two and I think eight minutes and that's important because Quentin Tarantino has kind of lost that plot where he doesn't I don't think that he listens to people anymore and he thinks that we want to hear 20 minute dialogues of people just saying the n-word a million times and it just doesn't it, it doesn't work anymore and I think the difference also is that you know when you're watching a Quentin Tarantino movie Right. I think that to do something like the visit so out of left field, you don't know that it's an M. Night Shyamalan movie. You would never guess. And the, f- and the, the fact that he can do that speaks volumes. He can completely reinterpret his own style and vision to the point where you have no idea that this is the same director. And that's something that I, that's that's pretty rare. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually really like The Hateful Eight. It was the first Tarantino movie since maybe Jackie Brown that I, I really enjoyed and rewatching. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely a very bloated movie. Um, and right. it, I, I think it's something like three and three and a half hours long. Jesus. You know, I, 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 have, but, I have to defend hatefully. I like how bloated it is. I like how long it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I kind of <laughs> enjoy, I, I do like that he doesn't listen to people anymore. Like, I think we need some directors <laughs> who are just out there, like, as, like the conversation we were talking about earlier, where, you know, you have everything being consolidated and bought up by, you know, these streaming companies and Disney 
Disney, you know, it's nice to have one guy who still gets like uh, $80 million um, as much time as he wants and can do whatever he wants. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's good that at least one person is still, even if the, like, the end product may not be everybody's uh, cup of tea. Uh, I still like that he's still allowed to make, you know, whatever bullshit he comes up with. I just want something like Jackie Brown, like the Kill Bill series again. And I just have. I'm surprised you guys long. didn't like Inglorious Bastards. I thought that was. I f- oh, fucking wow. hated it. I, I haven't. It hasn't worked for me yet either. I. I I haven't seen it in a while, though. I like the I like parts of it a lot. Christoph Waltz is amazing in it, but I'm gonna try Hateful Eight again. I think I was turn. I mean, when they kept punching the woman, I was like, I just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try it again, though. Leslie <laughs> made me want to watch it again. One thing I wanted to mention too is the cinematography in Glass. You know, I heard some people complaining before I had seen it. I don't even remember where I heard this. I probably actually did read more shit than I should have. Of saying that it looked cheap, like it didn't look what? like it was film. It, the cinematography didn't wasn't impressive, like Unbreakable. So when I got it, when I walked into it, I thought, well, obviously it looks different than Unbreakable. It's not, it's not filmed and shot in the same way. But I thought the cinematography in Glass was also really impressive, and you know the the color coding, the weird color mm-hmm. schemes, um, that that really light teal color, like in David Dunn's room. Um, how they dress the beast in that sort of yellow yeah. costume. Or Sarah Paulson's and, outfits were like spot on yeah. as well. I mean, the, the, it's strange too that I, and I tried to look this up to, to understand where exactly, like if this color coding that he's using purple, yellow, and, and um, green is like significant in some way. I couldn't really find any references to it. Um, but I mean, it keeps coming up in the film. You know, the Mr. Glass is purple. The beast is yellow. David Dunn is green. And one thing I saw someone else pointed out that on in Unbreakable, one of the artwork uh, things that uh, Mr. Glass is selling in his little gallery is a picture of a superhero in a green cape fighting like a beast-like creature wearing a yellow oh, costume. Wow. So I thought that was a pretty crazy callback. Just impressive that you would have to watch these movies really closely to notice something like that. But hear me out on this theory for a second, and maybe this is giving not giving Bruce Willis enough credit. There was a scene apparently cut out of this out of this movie where David Dunn's character is actually slamming a mugger who um, purse snatches some woman on the subway into a wall in the subway, and instead of that scene being in the movie. There was a scene that seemed like just like these two guys who who Superman punched like a guy on the street. That's how the movie opens. David Dunn goes after those guys. Um, so it got me thinking, you know, David Dunn's character is referenced multiple times in the movie, especially by Mr. Glass, as not fully realizing his abilities. And it seems like they're trying to imply that over all this time, he's still just this low... He's not really pushing himself, and he is still somehow maybe even experiencing that sadness or that hollow feeling, you know, that he was feeling in Unbreakable that he keeps talking about in that film. So here's my, just hear me out on this theory. What if M. Night Shyamalan has seen Bruce Willis over time sort of degenerate into this kind of (laughs) self-important phoned in actor who's not realizing his full potential and not pushing himself and his abilities. And 
sort of his arc in this movie is representative of his career as an actor (laughs) sort of since the time of the first Unbreakable and now. And that's why he decided to just drown him in a puddle and take him out that way. I don't know. I I mean, I I had that, that just sort of popped into my head the other day. I think it's, you know, (laughs) it's a, it's legitimate, but I I don't, I doubt that's, I don't think M. Night Shyamalan is that mean. I, I think I think yeah. more of the point is that you know we do hit one of this one of these things the film this film does that all these other movies don't is that it has an ending, it ends the story of these mm-hmm. characters and it actually is something that superhero comic books don't do either. Uh, as my wife just pointed out to me, you know, uh, Mr. Glass at one point says, this is actually an origin story. And he doesn't say what's the origin of. And of course, it's the origin of this new world um, with where everybody knows the truth. And uh, these other people who have powers may reveal themselves, etc, etc. But in, in order to tell that story, in any good origin story, you kill the parents, right? Like, that's what you do. You you get rid of what came before and somebody takes up this new mantle. So all of those characters kind of had to die and had to end. And it's very sad and kind of shocking, too. I really didn't expect, like, all of them to die that way in this kind of, you know, really sad way. Like, Bruce Willis's character, you know, just getting pushed in a puddle. Like, it's so, like hurtful and unsettling you like brutal like and you really can't fight back but it's it it was narratively you know necessary it made sense you need to have like we've had three movies of these characters we don't need 30 you know we can show just the important parts of their lives and that's okay and that's the point i think that's what m night Shyamalan shows us is like you didn't really i like even the dark knight kind of kind of the dark knight trilogy uh by christopher nolan kind of did this uh in a sense where you know batman retires at the end and you know just uh and then you know he has robin take up the mantle possibly like these characters can have endings with the MCU does, um, and what I, my friend, my uh, co-host uh, Jack Allison thinks they're actually going to do with the Star Wars. They're thinking they're going to, the next episode of Star Wars is actually going to like be a, like a to be continued. Like you're going to keep having movies with Ray in it after the fact instead of a real ending to I'm these uh, character stories. And the important part, yeah, right, a totally story right. needs a beginning and middle and an end. And he ended all these characters in a way that, like, uh, the one knock I would have on the ending is that they do the speechify thing, but that's like a comic book reference. Like everybody has, you know, they can go on a soliloquy while, while they're dying and explain everything. But that's just, I, I don't, I don't think he could resist having, you know, Mr. Glass having his last little speech while he was dying and Kevin having had a last little speech all while he was dying. I think that was just a comic book nerd in him had to get that out there. But in the end, like, I really think it was good that all these characters passed and now we can have this new thing that happens in our imagination without having to hold on to these same characters and what they mean like think how much more interesting the mcu like the most emphatic thing that people think about the mcu is that they think all of them are dead right like that's the most thing that people are hyped about like wow they're all they're all (laughs) dead now that's cool what's going to happen next but of course they're going to bring them all back you know right Right. And that it was really beautiful, Leslie, you just articulated that really well, which is 
the fallibility and like how mortal they were after all. Um, they all died pretty easily. You know, you had glass hit a couple times in the chest and he was done. Bruce Willis drowns in a puddle and, and the beast gets shot. And when before you thought that he was able to resist the shotgun rounds, you know, and so it's just, it's startling, but it also, it, it shows that they're fallible, they're mortal. Um, and even though, you know, they had these abilities, like they still die just like us. And, and when you know the end of a story, then you can care about it more. And when it's, you know, Star Wars, I've lost, I just, I've lost it with those movies because I just don't care because I know they just are indefinite. Like they're just going to keep coming and you kind of stop really having a relationship with, with the characters at that point. And so it does make you care more to know that they're gone and it makes you more yes. invested in it. For sure. And then there's that there's that beautiful moment um, at the end when uh, and, you know, it's very comic booky in a way because it's like Mr. Glass's mom, you know, son was a mass murderer. But yet at the end, she's there with Anna T Taylor Joy's character from Split and and uh, Joseph Dunn. That's so beautiful. That and, scene. And Joseph Dunn is wearing a green shirt. Mrs. Uh, uh, Price is wearing a purple dress and Anna Taylor Joy's character is wearing a yellow like shirt and they all sit down together on that bench and it's just I mean it's just such a great I don't know just everything just comes together so beautifully I thought and but again I mean it is also trying to be comic booky and one of the things I feel like critics not just miss but they're unfairly harsh on M. Night Shyamalan for is what they describe as too on the nose of references or things that are too silly, obvious or whatever. And, but I, you know, after watching this and I think Lady in the Water is also worth going back and, and rewatching, yeah. especially mm -hmm. is that I think that those are obviously very intentional and yeah, you could say that he, you know, maybe does it too much. That's a valid criticism, but he's doing it kind of in the same way that you know, so a, a script writer like Charlie Kaufman is doing it. These are meta references that are meant to, you know, sort of make you question that, like the reality of things a little bit. They're sort of meant to, sort of not not necessarily break the fourth wall, but but sort of just create this meta quality to it that I think that critics don't they miss or they are like missing what his intentions are. Um, and I I really appreciate it when he does it well, and I think he does it especially well in this movie. I mean, there's a scene at the end, right before the final fight scene takes place where Sarah Paulson's character is like, your father is fighting his, her captor. This all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? And then she looks on her computer and there's this little red alarm going off, like in a superhero cartoon. And then all of a sudden you hear like this brr, brr, siren. It's almost like a scene in a, like in a cartoon at that point. Like it crosses from being, you know, kind of normally grounded to being a cartoon in the span of, maybe 30 seconds, which is, you know, it's a ballsy thing for a filmmaker to try to do. So I, I appreciate it when he takes those like strong meta references and he, and he throws them into his movie. I wanted to say something really quickly. Remember when you mentioned the, the scene at the beginning when the, the quote unquote knockout game, <laughs> which is a funny reference because when I saw it, I thought that's hilarious because we've heard this kind of fear mongered about and pontificated from the likes of Fox News, Breitbart, you know, as as like yeah. black teens knocking out white people. And so I liked that he personified this as just like two white kids knocking out someone in the street. Like, first of all, this isn't even a thing that happens, but I like that he kind of 
did that, which was odd. Robbie, did you, did you think that that was funny? Yeah. I mean, I like, um, you know, I like some of the, those things in it and I definitely thought he did that. Yeah. Intentionally. And it's it funny because sure. the, the move that he's doing is not just a knockout. It's the Superman punch from MMA. So yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, comic yeah, book totally. reference there is like, Oh, I'll show you a real Superman. Yep. And totally. I also just, and this is going to sound wacky, um, but I also felt like there was maybe even some 9-11 references thrown into the movie, you know, it, it, the most obvious one being the Die Hard building was, you know, uh, called Nakatomi Plaza, and this was called Osaka Tower. But after watching a few times, the building kind of resembles the, the two towers, even though it's technically one building in this movie. And it also has this weird crosshatch pattern in the middle of the building in each each section that looks like where the planes hit the World Trade Center. Um, and then I also found out that the movie is actually the final fight sequence takes place on December 7th, uh, which is the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And I don't, I know, maybe those were, you know, I don't know if it's, he was just making, uh, I hope he wasn't drawing comparisons between Mr. Glass and Al-Qaeda or something like that. I don't think he was. Um, but, you know, uh, 9-11 was a catalyzing event in a lot of ways for many different mm. things. So, you know, I don't know. Um, and maybe he's even riffing on the, the, the stupid shit that Zack Snyder would throw in his movies about 9-11, like with dust clouds going everywhere and like, um, you know, in Metropolis, like during the Superman Zod fight. So I don't know. Well, it was a catalyzing <laughs> event and it also kind of imposed our new reality. And he does riff on that a lot, um, questioning your reality, being gaslit by authorities, having this kind of elite cabal that's trying to snuff out the intention of humanity. <laughs> so, I mean, who knows? It would be really interesting to, to see that thrown at him, see what he says. Yeah, what did you have? Uh, you're well versed in DC Comics, Leslie. Did you get like a. Did you think he was sort of riffing more on like a New World Order type thing or was it more like a Cadmus DC Comics, um, you know, like corporate group to, you know, to monitor and control superheroes? How did you see that, that twist ending? Um, so it's kind of hard to parse. So they do act more like a NWO world order group, like those creepy scenes where the last person leaves the restaurant and then they take it over. That's more like a world domination type thing. But their stated purpose as what we know, at least what they told us in the audience and the characters was kind of more limited to the Cadmus thing. We're just you know, keeping you guys in check and making sure, you know, nobody knows about this. But the implication is kind of that, you know, they have a lot more power than that. They have a ton of power. If they can, you know, hire people to like, you know, be police officers and murder people in the streets and they can subvert all these other systems of control from the government, can keep all this hidden. They must have a lot more power than this. And them being exposed is a bigger deal than just the superheroes are living among us aspect. These are also like the people who maybe run the world too. And, and, you know, them being exposed as well is also something that interesting. Now people are learning the truth about who these people are, what they've been hiding from them. And maybe that changes a lot more um, than just having, you know, more superheroes around. Yeah, totally. Um, and yeah, they, I mean, 
it's kind of, I mean, and I, I didn't love this movie, but I liked this aspect of it a lot. As the, the movie Cabin in the Woods, the most interesting aspect for me was when it kept cutting back to that group that managed all this stuff, sort of like in the yeah. suits and ties or like they were in like business casual, or whatever, in these offices managing this situation. Um, and so that's, it reminded me of that a little bit. And it also, I guess, reminded me of, all these people are saying it's oh it's like um it's like Hydra or something. No, it's not. It's not like Hydra. It's like they're they said that they've existed for thousands of years. This that's one of the things that she says to Samuel Jackson's character, Mister Glass. Um, so you're 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 led to believe that they've been controlling the world for yeah. ever since ancient history. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty cool. I mean, it's kind of like you know kind of beyond sort of a new world Alex Jonesy new world order paradigm um but yeah i mean any any final thoughts on on glass you guys want to touch on no i i think i pretty much said it all loved it love m night shyamalan everyone should watch it i am really looking forward to rewatching all of these in order especially if shyamalan decides to uh cut them all together somehow or do or does like a super oh, expanded man. edition i'm here for it m night um whatever you want to do i'm really excited for it. i'm down for it i'll watch it <laughs> that would be amazing i mean if especially if there's that much footage from glass uh that's not in the movie yeah, that would be crazy to see a supercut with all of them. And one more thing I want to mention about Split before we go is I really appreciate actually rewatching it. One of the things I noticed is how small and claustrophobic a lot of the sets are in the movie. He films it in this very specific way. I mean, like the kitchen that they're in a bunch of times in the movie. It's it's really cool. I mean, there's a lot of cool things that you don't maybe notice on the first viewing. So. If you loved Unbreakable but didn't love Split, mm-hmm. yeah, do what Leslie said. Watch all three of them in order. Knowing how fast Blu-rays come out these days, I'm sure Glass will be out in like two months on some yeah. kind of streaming site or physical format. One last point. Isn't it funny that they kind of remade The Happening, but like it was a fucking flop again? The Bird Box movie was just like, why? Oh, is that like why The Happening? This? I never I mean, saw. It was essentially the same concept, except yeah, it was just like done really poorly. And it was like, why would you do this if you're not going to do it well? Oh, you but kill yourself. I, th- I, I think I read that, that you kill yourself if you see the monsters or something. Yeah. It was just, I wonder how he feels about that. He's just like, you pretty much, I mean, even though it was based on a book, it just seemed like it was a ripoff and then just done bad. But anyway, yeah, I definitely need to rewatch Split. In fact, I think I want to watch it tonight. I always thought The Happening was, was one of the his best trailers ever made or one of his worst right. movies ever made. <laughs> But I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll give another chance. I don't know if I could get over Mark Wahlberg, though. <laughs> yeah, he's tough. He's, he's really <laughs> tough. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Leslie. This is great. We went on for, oh, geez, over two hours. Yeah. Holy shit. Well, well, thank you so much for having me. As I said, I love you guys' show. I listen to every episode. I stop whatever I'm doing. You guys take priority. What you guys have been doing is just so great, so fantastic. I love both of you. You're amazing. Thank you for having me on. I wouldn't have a show without the stuff uh-huh. you're doing. Happy, I was just telling somebody yesterday, it's like if it wasn't for your your watching your show, I would not be as, you know, woke as I was politically. Wow. Like, you're great. 
That's, that's so amazing sweet, because Leslie. I I'm I'm a big fan of you, Leslie, and I'm really honored. And I'm just listening to you talk about boobies. I, you're just really cool, man, and um, super honored to know you. And that's really inspiring. And let's just keep lifting each other up and inspiring each other because that's oh, incredible yeah. to hear. So awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for saying all that, Leslie. And I've been listening to your podcast as well. Um, and and shout out to Jack. Uh, I, I follow him on Twitter, and I I love the, the stuff he's been doing. Yeah, yeah keep uh, up the good you. work, Leslie. Your podcast you so is much. really great. If you like what you've heard today and appreciate the hard work that goes into these podcasts, please consider donating to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio. For as little as $1 per episode, you can become a subscriber and get exclusive access to some locked episodes, even though most of our episodes are public. For as donating as little as $20 per episode, you get free access to my documentary film series, A Very Heavy Agenda. But please check that out. And thanks for listening. <laughs>